I've met people who have, who have done bad things who are in the spirit world. And what I find actually happens is that if we cross into spirit and we have things that we have to, you know, look at things that we've done or things that have been done to us, that we are usually put into what I refer to as timeout. You can consider it a, a limbo space, but it isn't really completely limbo because you are doing something there. You're reviewing how, you know, your actions, how they affected your life, how they affected other people's lives. And, but I've never actually met anybody who's gone to heaven or hell. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul has two guests, medium and author Sally Crow and shaman and Czech faculty member Angie Check. Sally Crow is a natural psychic medium who weaves the traditions of her Irish traveler and Blackfoot heritage with modern magical techniques. For more than 30 years, she has worked as a spirit channel, seer, and intuitive healer, offering readings and teaching workshops throughout the United States and internationally. Her latest book, Spirit Speaker, A Medium's Guide to Death and Dying, is available from all good booksellers. Angie holds a certification in energy medicine and is a graduate of the advanced training three-year shamanic program offered through the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. She is also a graduate of Nine Gates Mystery School, as well as a senior Czech faculty member teaching holistic lifestyle coaching courses for the Czech Institute. A big thank you to our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Paleo Valley, Organifi, our podcast sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures, and our preferred product sponsor, Peak Life. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying their products and services. To get the latest news from Paul and the Living 4D podcast, subscribe to his newsletter at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. Today, Paul is talking with Sally Crow and Angie about death and beyond. Today, we have a very interesting and one of the most requested topics I've ever had, which is death and beyond. I've had many people reach out to me about this, and I've been working on finding the right people for a long time, and it came together. So today, we have the special opportunity to speak with two people that have a lot of experience working with people that have crossed to the other side and, and everything related to that. Our guests today are Sally Crow who I learned about watching Regina Meredith's show Open Minds, where there's an excellent interview with Sally Crow. And as soon as I listened to the interview, I knew for sure I wanted to talk to her on the podcast. And then my wife, Angie Check, who also has a lot of experience in this area. So today we're going to have a three-way dialogue and talk about these things. I also have quite a lot of experience in this area. And Sally Crow has a very good book called Spirit Speaker, A Medium's Guide to Death and Dying, which I think is an excellent book for anybody interested in the topic or interested in learning to work in that area. Sally Crow, welcome. And while it's on my mind, you do you teach classes for people in that? I do teach classes on spirit communication. The, the book Spirit Speaker covers more than just it's for more than just people who are interested in developing skills in spirit communication it's for people who just have 
questions and concerns about what happens when we die. But I do teach classes on spirit communication, usually in the fall. I have a lot of classes I teach, so I have to, you know, kind of like push them out throughout the year. Okay, fantastic. So at the end of the podcast, you're welcome to share a website, anything like that, so people can find you. I also highly recommend everybody watch Sally Crow on Open Minds with Regina Meredith. It's a fantastic interview, and you'll get a real sense of her there as well as here. Um, But I I thought it was a fantastic interview that's worth watching. So, um, Angie, welcome, honey. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Sally Crow, why don't we begin with you, and maybe you can share your background as to how you became a medium that communicates with people that have passed over. Give us some of your development and what led to this. You know, for most people out there, as you know, a lot of people think that, oh, talking to the dead is a bunch of BS. And, you know, a lot of people are kind of like confused about it, or they think that people are making it up and, and things like that. So I think it's interesting and important for people to get a sense of how it is that this skill came about in each of you? I was born into a family where my great-grandmother was a person who people went to see, to look into their future and to communicate with their dead. And sometimes for potions and simple remedies, she didn't have the title of psychic medium because it really wasn't a common thing. But that was my first teacher. And I began my practice of working with spirit and the unknown by the time I was like three or four years old. So I've always had experiences (laughs) with spirits. Yeah. um, My parents were hippies and my dad was just out of Vietnam and my mom was a teenager. And so while I, I lived in my parents' house and they fed me and clothed me and all that kind of stuff, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother who was 71 when I was born. Like I said, people around town came to visit her under the guise of selling worms and liking her food because (laughs) it was a different time and you couldn't really put out your, you know, plaque saying that's what you were doing. I began reading cards for the public when I was 18. So mostly I started with divination publicly And by the time I was 30, I had a major opening to spirit that led me to start including spirit communication in the work that I offer. So I've been working in the field psychically for over 30 years. What brought your opening on? I have always been a person who had a deep passion and study for this. So while I had gifts, it wasn't like I was just sitting around and letting whatever happened happen. I was, you know, exploring through magic and um, Reiki. It was after I had my third Reiki, um, my master's to my third master attunement. So I have my Reiki master in five schools of Reiki, six schools of Reiki, and also in a form of healing that is similar that involves runes. So I had three masters in Reiki by the time I was 30. And that's when I had this major opening And I wrote about it in my first book, which was called Jump Girl, The Initiation and Art of a Spirit Speaker. And that's a memoir. It came out through um, North Atlantic Press, so a different press than I'm connected with now. But it was a memoir of my growing up psychic and all the different experiences I had. And it fully covers my, I call it the November incident, because it started like 
November 1st and went on for months, but it was intense. It was a complete psychic opening filled with, you know, Kundalini openings and past life recall and five spirits tutoring me. So it was pretty intense, but you know, I have a really good partner. So I had somebody who believed in me and didn't think I was crazy and helped me to navigate that opening. And I almost immediately started offering spirit communication as something I did. And it soon became really what people most often were seeking me out for. These types of openings can come on through many different experiences. Oh, they can. But mine was, I think, was pushed, you know, because I kept studying and kept working on opening myself more and more. I was intentionally, you know, I don't know that I intentionally thought I was going for an open, more open connection to spirit because that didn't really cross my mind. But I stopped calling what I do work a long time ago because my husband told me that I either needed to call it something else or I was going to be a workaholic because <laughs> I <laughs> so just acknowledging that this is also my hobby what I do in my spare time what I do with my friends what I do you know like you can't call it a job after a while I'm just fortunate enough to make money doing it I think we all have that in common <laughs> or I I'd so be too. labeled a workaholic very badly <laughs> I know well, you know what? It really did change how I viewed it because if you're telling yourself that you're always going to work, then there's this kind of, I don't know, kind of like feeling of burden that sometimes can come with it. Mm. But if you just say, this is who I am and I, I'm never going to really retire. It's going to morph and change over the years, but this is it. You know, mm. this is, this is who I am lifelong. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Angie, why don't you give us your story of how this skill and ability burst through you. Okay. Well, I think uh, like Sally Crow, my childhood, I had visions and things were, were occurring to me. And um, I would say it was, I had a lot of things like where I was using my pre-conscious mind of knowing things without knowing things and, and started knowing when people would die without knowing about them dying. So a very early experience, I remember um, that I was sitting at the table and I was coloring and my grandmother was living with us at the time, and she was very, very upset. And I was like, "What's the matter, Grandma?" And she's like, "Oh, I'm so worried about my friend. She's, you know, she's just having such a hard time with her health." And I just stopped, and I got this vision that she was going to pass away. And I said, "Oh, well, don't worry, she'll be dead next week." And I kept on trying. And I was, you know, four or five years old, so it was just a matter of fact statement. And she looked at me and she said, "How dare you say that?" And I was like. And she's like, that's horrible. And she stormed off. And I just was like, oh, and I did, but I just kept on drawing. And it was a week later that her friend did die. And I came from a Catholic family. And so this was very taboo. And so I remember her coming up to me and said, you did this to my friend. You said that. And I just shrunk. And I was just like, maybe I did. And so I remember just really in my younger years trying to be, my name's Angie, Angela. And so I'm trying to be angelic and being in this Catholic school and not thinking that I was doing something wrong. So I'd pray more. And, oh God, I'm so sorry. Did I do something wrong to offend you? And so my early childhood wasn't like Sally Crows where they're inviting it. It was more of pushing it away and trying to not look at those um, moments in my life. 
So it wasn't until I was, you know, a little bit older, like in teenage years where you start saying, ah, screw your parents, I'm going to do these things anyways, and started playing with tarot cards and Ouija boards and and started connecting to the dead that way. And, and still, I kept it at a bay because I, I just felt it was against our family's religion. And, you know, it was just something I was curious with and I enjoyed it. But it wasn't until I moved out of home, I was in college, that I really started doing more of that work. And I would say it wasn't until I was married to my ex-husband that I was doing a lot of meditation. And that's what really caused my opening. And when I was doing these deep meditations that I started getting disconnected with all. And I started having these deep meditations where I would think, oh, okay, I'm just going to meditate for you know 20 minutes. And then I'd be out for two hours and connecting to beans and all sorts of things, getting messages and valuable messages like to help me with my life and things that I couldn't have just known in or knowing. It was like I was learning things and I thought, this is amazing. Um, but with that, my mind was a little bit scary because I had so much energy coming through me that a lot of dark entities did come towards me. And I was like, uh, they weren't always dark, but just like lost souls. And it was, they were in my field and Angie, will you call my mom, pick up the phone book. I'll guide you to my, her number, call her. And I'm like, I'm going crazy. I am going crazy. I'm in my car. I remember distinctly one time driving to work at four o'clock in the morning because I was a personal trainer. And I, I all of a sudden the light in my car went on like someone, it felt like someone opened the door, but the light was on. I could feel an entity in the back seat. And they're like, I just need to get to the town center. I know you're going there. And so what it felt to me was this soul had died on this road. It's a, it's a very steep road down that I used to travel. And a lot of people would lose control and die. So there was a lot of deaths on that road. And so I remember going, okay, you know, and I didn't know what to do and driving to the town center. And as soon as I went in, I went over a speed bump and the light went off and it was like, they left my car. I'm like, that is weird. And it just became too much for me. Like I, I was like, I'm losing my mind, you know? And so I remember talking to another psychic and she did some clearing on me and she closed me because I was too open. She's like, now you have the ability to be discerning when you want to do that work because people would come to me when I'm sleeping, standing over my bed, staring at me. I pulled my arm out, literally physically pulled at my arm one time because there was this man standing on, above me in bed. And when you wake up, you think that's a real person. I went to hit them and there was nobody there. It was just an apparition. And I literally pulled my shoulder out and had to go to a chiropractor. And it, it got a little weird at first. And I realized, okay, I need to learn more about this and, and be more discerning. So that's kind of my entry was just like, okay. And as I started getting more discerning about how I'd connect and who I'd connect to, the most beautiful part was when I was with my ex-husband, he had relatives in their 90s and they were all on their death stage. And so I had a few years of getting to know them and then was able to be there when they were dying. And that's when it really hit home because I had this connection to them. And through my meditation, all of a sudden I'm in their room, whether in their hospital, and all of a sudden I could see people coming in. I went, oh my goodness. I'm seeing people come in through this room and I would explain it to my ex-husband. I'm like, I see this person and explain how their body was being portrayed to me. And he'd be like, oh, that's her sister. Oh, that's the mo her mom or that. And these are people I'd never met before, ever even seen. And so it was very confirming to me. It was like, this is awesome to be able to, you know, see these people showing up for them. And uh, it was just a powerful time in my life. I, I think it's one of my favorites of really getting to see and know and, and being able to talk to someone who says, yeah, I know who that is. And, and I'd be like, oh, okay, I, I, her husband's coming. And he's like, oh, no, no, that's not the husband. That's the brother. I'm like, because I'd explain who they were. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And just getting to be in that realm was really fascinating. And, and, and that's what I realized. There's, you know, there's, there's nothing to worry about. You can see these people show up when you, when you die. You're not alone in death. So even if you die alone, you're really not alone. There's always someone on the other side that's willing to help and will come to you 
even animals too. I mean, you know, to say that dogs show up and, and you know your favorite pet will show up. Part of my, just like Sally Crow, she started taking courses and learning about these things. I was diving into energy medicine, learning how to you know feel more. Um, I went to shaman school, so I did Michael Harner's advanced uh, three year advanced training. And, and so that was part of learning to talk to spirits. And so then I got formal training. And that's really it, when it all started coming together. And through his course and, and working with the, the shamans at his school really helped me be comfortable with learning about spirits and how to connect to them, you know, and that sort of thing. So that was a very big part of my life. Yeah. Mine's very different than both of you, I think, in many ways. The first thing that happened to me that told me as a child something was unique going on inside of me. My father drowned when I was eight, and I was already in a lot of emotional turmoil, as were my brother and sister, because I really was angry uh, that this man who became my stepfather was being intimate with my mother, because I just felt like that he didn't belong there, and where's my father? Um, because they split up when I was three, but so my father was gone, but he drowned, strangely enough, Christmas Eve, uh, 1969. And it was extremely emotionally disturbing for me. And I looked for him everywhere I went. I couldn't believe that he was dead. My grandparents came to visit us. We, at that time, my parents had moved to Idaho with my stepfather and we had a pig farm. And my grandparents on the way to us, attended my father's funeral. And the strangest thing happened. My my grandparents arrived and they were talking to us and, and I, you know, I was emotional. And um, my grandfather was saying, you know, we went to your dad's funeral and he said to me, would you like to know what was on his gravestone? And I said, I already know. He said, what is it? And I told him, I saw a picture almost like the tr a trophy my 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 real father was a professional drag racer and I I saw like a trophy with a car on it like you would get if you won a drag race and he looked at me in shock and so did my grandmother and they said how do you know that and I said I had a dream last night and I was there at the funeral I was watching all of it and sorry it's bringing up a lot of emotion in me and um I saw you and grandma there and and in the dream I wasn't in my body I was I was just seeing it like like I remote view. So I was almost as though I was over it watching the whole thing and I could hear it and everything. And so that was the first thing that happened. Then when I was 12, due to extreme stress in the family and me just, uh, I won't tell you the whole story, it'd take too long, but I really was very angry and upset and frustrated. And my father had no sense of what a child was and he just worked the hell out of us. I used to want to get out of my bedroom at night and my parents would make us go to bed at 7.30, but on Vancouver Island, it stays light sometimes till 11 o'clock in the summer. And I was just like a caged animal because I didn't get any time to play. It was work all the time. And one night I just started to fall asleep. And I was in that hypnagogic state halfway between sleeping and waking. And I was looking at myself from the ceiling, laying in bed. And I'm looking down at myself and I, I'm like am I dreaming or am I awake? And and so then I, I awoken and I looked up and I could actually see my a, a light body, like a spirit body. 
So the person in bed was looking at the one up the top. Then all of a sudden my consciousness shifted and I'm looking down at the one in bed and I got scared and it was like a lightning bolt hit me and my whole body jumped and I, my spirit body came back into my physical body. My mother had become a yogi when I was 12, and this is probably around that time, but I had been spending time with the Self-Realization Fellowship monks, practicing meditation, going to their temple meetings. And so I immediately thought after I got over the shock, well, if I could do it once, maybe I can do it again. And so I put my mind to it and just kind of relaxed myself and just focused on being out of my body. And sure enough, I floated right up out of my body. And so that began a series of me working with this ability to leave my body and going all over the farm and looking for objects, then getting up in the morning and going to check to see if they were there to make sure I wasn't going crazy. And later on, I became a remote viewer and won a remote viewing contest put on by the CIA's, one of the CIA's remote viewing directors in the year 2000 with 750 people in the training program in class which ended with a contest, which I won. And then when I began training with Master Fong Ha and Tai Chi in the year 2000, who I studied with for a long time and, and did 18 years of daily Tai Chi, that blew my voyances wide open. And through that practice, I began seeing disembodied souls quite often. And I was living on the road with Penny traveling all over the world. And I would see them in hotels. I would, there'd be a lot of them. And so I would sometimes talk to them and ask them, you know, what are you, why are you still here? And things like that. But what happened eventually fairly along that period of time is I would actually be doing therapy with people that had come to me and I would realize that they were suffering from unresolved grief and spontaneously all of a sudden there'd be somebody else sitting in the treatment room and I would look at them because I am clairvoyant so I can see them. And I would say, who are you? And they would say things like, well, I'm this person's grandmother or grandfather or whoever they were. And I want you to convey a message to them because they don't understand that I'm okay. Or they don't, or they would be giving me key messages about things. Uh, a quick story of one of them, was a lady that was about 47. Her husband was a medical doctor and she had severe hypothyroid challenges and her fingernails had fallen off, her hair had fallen off and a whole bunch of stuff was going on with her. And she'd been seeing medical doctors for years and years and getting worse and worse. So she found out about me and came to me. And as I was talking to her in my first session with her, uh, her father showed up and she was a kid and he used to work on cars and he was working on his car and she was standing right there at the fender. He was bent over the hood working on the car and he had a heart attack and dropped over dead right into the engine compartment. And she thought somehow she had done something that had killed him and she'd been carrying this grief for her whole life, which was linked to this behavioral pattern she'd developed of a lot of nervousness and anxiousness. And she was actually drinking 25 cups of coffee a day. As a side note, not a single one of the 10 medical doctors that ever worked with her told her that had anything to do with it. And so I communicated what her father wanted to tell her. And in every case, now there's been, you know, probably 30 or 40 or 50 of these cases, I can't even count them anymore. 
I said, look, I, I, she might think I'm crazy. I need you to tell me something that there's no way I could know it. So they've always given me information that I can pass on and it's always been accurate. The next thing I'll say just to kind of close my introduction is that I work deeply spiritually and have been since I was a kid. And with my remote viewing abilities, astral travel abilities, and clairvoyance, I begin developing the habit of whenever I found conflicts in literature, so I might be studying Jung or Steiner or Plato or Aristotle or Plotinus, I would simply ask my soul to please connect me to the soul of. So for example, I had a big disagreement with Osho. I loved Osho. I studied everything he ever published. I have 800 pages of handwritten notes. But Osho was hardcore on this vegetarian kick, which got him in trouble and lots of other people. And he was also very against people being gay. He would say things like, you can't get to God or become enlightened if you're gay or, or lesbian, which to me was just ridiculous. And it upset me because he was misleading people. So I went to Osho's soul and spoke to him directly and I had it out with him. And so he admitted to me that he was wrong and he said he, he won't do it he, next time. If he takes on another body, he, he wouldn't do it that way. So through the years of my career, I've always gone to the souls that have things in their literature that I think are in conflict or that are in conflict with other things I've learned. So a huge amount of my knowledge has actually come by way of going directly to these people. And Carl Jung and Rudolf Steiner are both spirit guides for me that have worked with me extensively to build the Institute. So that's sort of how we're basing this podcast today. So you understand a little bit about how each of us has a background, knowledge, and experience in this area. Um, to move forward, the next thing I want to talk to you guys about, because I feel it's very important, I feel that people's opinions regarding what happens when we die are often a direct reflection of their beliefs about God and their religious or materialist non-God programming. So to begin with, could each of you share what you believe God to be in your thoughts on how a person's belief may influence what they experience when they die? So what is God to you and how do you feel a person's beliefs or religious programming has an effect on the process they go through when they die. Sally Crow, we start with you. I've always had a very close relationship with God and from many different facets. And that's how I like to describe God as like a gemstone. And that like gemstones, we might like to look at that gemstone from a different facet than somebody else might to, like to. And it's the same way with God. We don't all get to God the same way. But my personal belief is God is that collective consciousness that greater than and that most of us like to interact with a facet or facets of God, such as Christian Christians want to work with a facet of God that's different than myself, who has more of a personal relationship with Norse deities and Celtic deities. And I believe these deities are facets of that greater collective God. And they help us to process that relationship in different ways. But like you, Paul Check, I'm very much like where you started talking about um, when you see conflict and how you want to, you know, come at it differently. I feel the same way about religion and that I'm always looking for how they're the same. 
You know, I'm always looking because if you look, there is so much crossover between religion in which the beliefs really aren't that different. A lot of it is semantics and maybe personal morals, but God itself has a very similar energy throughout the world. I do think that we are all also part of that being, just like the genus locus of a place is a spirit of place that's the collection of all of its bits. So the genus locus of your home or your land would be the animals that reside there, the people that reside there, the energy that's that place. And God includes us too, because we are also part of that consciousness. As far as people's relationship with death, being connected to their relationship with God, as a professional medium for the last 20 years, I've been doing that or over 20 years now, I have found that how we believe in God is not as important as whether we believe in God. Mm -hmm. That what I find is that I've communicated with a lot because of where I live. Um, I'm pretty close to Canada and pretty close to Quebec, which has a very high French Canadian population and a very high level of Catholicism. Okay. So we, I've communicated with many, many, many dead Catholic grandmothers who never would have imagined themselves maybe talking to a medium in the time that they were living, but because they had such a deep belief in an afterlife and they were so deeply connected to spirit, they are some of the best communicators because for them, there wasn't a doubt on whether there was an afterlife. The biggest problem that people run into is I think the people who are you know, or atheists struggle a little bit more, but I think they don't struggle as much once they've crossed into spirit. I think they struggle at the time of death. I think that, you know, that not knowing where they're going, I find as somebody who's worked with people at the end of life as well, that people who have no belief system have more struggle at their time of dying. Their ability to let go is a little bit harder than other people's because they at that last minute might have more fear on what is actually going to happen to them because the idea of non-existence mm-hmm. is pretty, pretty overwhelming. Yes. It might seem fine when you're healthy and you're going through life and everything is, you know, okay. But once you're sick or you're resting on that deathbed in some way, the idea that you're going into oblivion and that there is nothing after has a pretty big effect. I do believe that we do, to some extent, create what the afterlife looks like for us, that I have met some spirits, like my husband's spirit guide, prefer, he really liked, he was, um, my husband and him shared a past life in um, England around the time of the Industrial Revolution, and they were both doctors. And in this life, this man had a oak or wooden office. And every time that he, or most of the time when he communicates, you actually, in your, in my mind, I'm entering his office. I am sitting with him in an office. He holds that so firmly while I've met other spirits who hold no, very little image of themselves or their belongings. They might talk about 
experiences, but kind of like when you talked about being out of your body and that you were not as important to the situation. You know, there's some spirits who come through and they talk about what's happening with their loved ones who are alive and they talk about their past, but they are not really doing much. They're, they've decided to kind of like slip into that collective consciousness, if you will. And much like when we are asleep and we don't really have all of our senses on board, you know, so some people do choose that, but religion, I think plays a bigger factor in our process of dying. And afterlife, I feel like a lot of at least the people who I spirits, I experience that many of them have a much broader view of reality once they've crossed into spirit, you know, really conservative, like strict religious minds often can see a bigger picture, you know, like the Catholic grandmother who would no longer like Angie's grandmother think that what she was doing was evil, that they're able to see by reading the energy of the person that, you know, this person's a good person. They're not doing anything bad except for helping these other people who are mourning to have some peace over the fact that they are no longer connected or feel the connection of their loved one. So I think that in that area, death, is brings us more back to the awareness of that full gemstone God instead of just the little facet that we might have found solace with when we were living. Mm. That's really great for me. God, uh, as we, uh, I'd love to share is unconditional love. Uh, I like to refer to God as source, you know, pure potential. I see God as all things. That's a creator of all things. And with that, all things are come from God. And so everything from the tiniest little thing, everything is evolved from God. And, and so um, if a person is taught that God is, you know, we, in our minds, you know, our human minds can only comprehend things in certain ways. It's like, we're taught this God must be like this old man in a cloud looking down and taking notes of all the bad things we're doing. You know, that's a, a really narrow view. It's like, like Salicro said, a little tiny aspect of this this gem and it's like is that really what god really is and it's like no god is much more than that and is not you know if it's unconditional love then how can you burn someone in hell if it's unconditional you know so we realize that's a, kind of an oxymoron how you know it doesn't make sense that fear though that we're taught and if you never really confronted it or thought about it in your life you just accepted that as true on your deathbed it could be very scary because then all of a sudden you start reflecting on everything that happened you're like oh my god god's gonna it's gonna count up all my sins right now and i'm gonna either burn in hell eternally or go to heaven and that's a very scary thought process and like sally crow i feel that people's process of death may be extremely different, but the end result is you you enter into that afterlife and it's very different than you expected. Then you go, oh, wow, thank goodness I was wrong. <laughs> but during that de death process, you know, it can be very, very scary. And um, I, I like to relate how to think about death as just like um, being born. You know, it's like everybody's birth story is very different, we're, yet we're all born. And so, you know, the, you know, the, the emotions of the soul and, and what the soul's carrying from past lives. And I know we might talk about that later, but, you know, what we bring into the world can influence how we're born and it can definitely influence how we die. And so uh, everybody's birth story is different. Everybody's death story is very different. And ultimately what happens to us can, you know, and I think because we have our beliefs, you know, I like to talk to my students about the ego and, and telling you that the ego, one of the things, the functions of the ego is to make sure you're always right. 
So if you tell yourself that you're not worthy and you suck, all you see in your life is things that make you tell you how crappy you are. See, you're terrible at that. See, you're terrible at that too. But if you tell yourself I'm awesome and I'm, I'm really good at things, then all of a sudden you see all the things you're good at. You know, so now your your ego is there to make sure you see that. So if you say this is what happens at death, well, that's probably what you're going to see at death because that's what you told yourself to see. You know, it's like if you tell yourself I'm going to go to the store and buy some earrings, you're going to only see earrings at the store because that's what you're looking for. What was there other things there? Well, sure, they sold barrettes and hair clips and makeup and who knows what else they had at that store. But you were focusing on one aspect of death, and so that's what your perception is, and that's what you focus on, that's what you see. And so that's what I see with clients is that, you know, then when they, when, when people are on their deathbed is they are going to see exactly what they want to see. And then when they die, then that can be a completely different experience once the death process is over and they've leave, left the body. Very interesting from both of you. Thank you. Paleo Valley makes some incredible superfood bars that are a lot different than what most people think of as a superfood bar. I've got Autumn Smith, the creator of their superfood bars, right here to tell you about them. Autumn, what is so unique about your awesome superfood bars? Well, our superfood bars are unique because not only do they not contain refined sugar or GMOs or any of the freaky additives that you'll find in most bars or gluten or anything, but they're just whole foods. They're low in sugar. They're made with superfoods like ginger and broccoli and acerola cherry and collagen from grass-fed and finished animals, which we all know is like a fountain of youth. And so the best part about them though is probably the flavor. They come in chocolate and apple cinnamon, and we have so many more delicious flavors. That's awesome. And superfood bars also now come in lemon meringue and red velvet flavors too both of which are a big hit with my kids. All you have to do to get your superfood bars and save 15% is go to paleovalley.com forward slash Paul Check. That's C-H-E-K. No promo code is needed as your discount will be automatically applied. That's paleovalley forward slash Paul Check. I hope you love them as much as my family does. You know, my introduction to God came by way of Christian science because my mother was a Christian scientist before she became a yogi. And quite frankly, as a child, I was very confused and it scared the hell out of me because I could not reconcile how God is love and God loves you, but God will burn you in hell and purgatory and all this other stuff. And it also was deeply disturbing to me that whenever I would ask questions about these issues, I would get told uh, children are meant to, to listen, not to talk, or, um, you know, I would be pushed off. And, and so I began to be insecure about the fact that adults didn't seem to notice these serious inconsistencies and conflicts in the Bible as I was sitting in Sunday school. And it, it really disturbed me. When I was 12 again, around the period that I came out of my body, I was going through a lot of stress and I got very, very angry at God. And one day, one of the things my father had us doing is whenever our animal work was done and, and primary things like fixing fences, milking cows, cleaning pens, watering, etc., cetera, our, our fields had tons of rocks in them, which is very damaging to plows and, and rakes and things like that. So I always had to go with my brothers and sisters and pick rocks out, no matter how wet or how cold or nasty it was, it was out there and it was hard work. And I, 
and something inside of me was very frustrated and angry because I thought, my God, you know, somehow as this 12 year old boy, I'm like, is this what I came to this world to do? Is this kind of stuff? And it was disturbing me. And so I got mad and I was standing in the middle of a 10 acre field completely by myself. And I, I really just got, I had it out with God. And I, I yelled and screamed and said, why, what, what have I done to deserve this? Speaking of the situation of my whole life, the death of my father, uh, my grandparents dying and, you know, a, a lot of death that happened. And all of a sudden, from every single direction at once, I mean, above me, around me, everywhere, a voice came to me and said, do not worry. Your life is a life of purpose. Just be patient. Everything will be fine. And it, it tripped me out. I literally was looking in every direction. I was looking all around. I thought somebody was playing a trick on me, but I was literally standing in the middle of a 10-acre field. There was no one else there. I never told anybody in my family about that because it was too, I just knew it wouldn't get a good reception. So later I was practicing meditation and I was 35 at the time. And I had two students that asked me to teach them to meditate. They'd never tried to meditate. I'd been meditating for years at the time. I took them to the Self-Realization Fellowship Temple in Encinitas where Yogananda wrote the book, The Autobiography of a Yogi. And there was a place I liked to meditate there right on top of the Swami's cliff where all the surfers go. It's about a hundred foot cliff and you're sitting looking over the ocean. So I gave them the basics of meditation and I just sat there with them on the next bench. And these were twin brothers that were professional skateboard stars. And it was their first time ever to meditate. And after probably 10 or 15 minutes, all of a sudden, I, I became one with the entire universe, which the first time that happened, by the way, was when my son, Paul Jr., was born. He's 43 now. I was only 18. I had just turned 18. As, he was, as his head came out of the, his mother's vagina, out of the birth canal, I all of a sudden was blown into a full samadhi and I was one with the whole universe and I experienced myself as the stars and everything all at once. It was very overwhelming and shocking, but I, I had so much love for him that it just poured through me and it blew me out into the universe. So when this second samadhi came while I was meditating, I recognized it, but it still was profound and I realized again, that God is everything. There is no separation from God. God's not over there and we're over here. Every single thing is inside of God, just like your thoughts are inside your mind and your heart is in your chest. Then later in 2006, I did a year of training in plant medicine use with a doctor and did 50 journeys and did very deep, had many, many, many deep experiences. And through years of doing extensive work with plant medicines and progressively upping doses till I hit psychosis or went into complete union. I've had countless experiences of merging with God. And all, all the time, I always came to the same experience that there is, there is nothing here but God. There is not a God that you can externalize. There's, there is nothing but God. And in my studies of Sufism, I came across, I believe it's the book Universal Sufism, it gave the first principle of Sufism, which is there is no God, but God, I worship everything and everyone. And when I read that, I went, that is the deepest truth I've ever seen written in any religious book.
how that relates to the afterlife for me is that I've had multiple experiences of working with people caught after they've died and they haven't progressed onward, but they're trapped and they don't want to move toward what often appears to them as light. And in every case, there has been a fear of God. There have been a fear of that they sin too much, that they're going to burn in hell. And so in many of my journeys, both practicing shamanism and going into trance states without plant medicines and with them, I found that there are thousands and thousands of these souls out there. I mean, I can't even count them all. I mean, it's sad. It's heartbreaking for me. When I started experiencing this and seeing this, I, I really had deep sadness in me because there's so many of them hanging in this limbo state in what we would call the astral realm. I saw that a person's beliefs can have a paralyzing effect on them if they're antagonistic to the truth of God as love and and the kinds of things we've all been sharing. So I, I, I think that I just wanted to establish this connection between one's beliefs in God and, and the process that they go through. My next question is, Angie and Sally Crows, you know there's a wide variation on what the soul is, or even if we have a soul as, as there are beliefs about God. I feel that uh, the beliefs one holds regarding what a soul is have an influence on what they perceive when communicating with other souls, you're unlikely to see or perceive what you don't believe or don't have a framework of reference for. So I would like it if maybe each of you could, since what you're communicating with and working with, which you might call a spirit, but whatever it is that's moving out of the body into the afterlife is a soul. So could maybe each of you, for the listeners, encapsulate what a soul is to you? That's one that's an ever evolving one for me because I like to refer to the soul as multiple instead of singular in the sense that I believe that we are all multiple. And, you know, we can come at this from the perspective of, you know, you incorporating quantum science and the fact that, you know, we have multiple um, realities that could be happening at any one moment. And also from the perspective of past life parallel lives. So I mentioned earlier that in my first book, I wrote extensively about my opening. I've had past life memories since I was like three years old. So my path, as I was saying, started really young. I have a sister who's only a year and a half younger than me. So not only did I have this grandmother that I could communicate with, I had my sister and my parents didn't really pay attention to what we were doing in our world because they had their own stuff. So we spent a lot of time interacting with different aspects of ourselves. Like I've been communicating with my adult self since I was a little girl, like through mirrors, we would sit and sometimes even get into arguments with these people who were really us. Okay. So when I talk about soul, like I can get into some really weird soul talk and That's good. it is good. And it can be like, one of the things I work with my, with my clients is understanding that we are multiple, that when we talk about our soul, our soul not only has these other incarnations in which maybe the only difference was that the storm that was happening in my area was earlier. So we had to do this at another time, you know, 
um, that could be the slightest difference. But in some of them, there are major differences in which we've taken another path or how many of us are influenced by, you know, fears or interests or have knowledge that we've carried from other incarnations of ourselves. So I have a really strong relationship with two different parallel lives of mine in which I was different people and they know who I am too. So that's the really weird part about it. And weird with a why is that our soul is much more complex than we think it is. And I tell people that when we die, we become all that we ever were. So you know, when I die, I will become all these different incarnations that my soul has ever had, you know, whether you call it past lives or parallel lives, when you die, it's the same thing. The difference being, you know, that not everybody has experienced it. My sister and I had of being aware of these different parts of ourselves, even from the time that we were very small children, so that we grew up with it being normal. And I think in the future, we're really going to see more of this because like even psychology is starting to change. Like now they don't look at multiple personalities as always being a disorder. It's only a disorder if it's causing you dysfunction in your life. The fact that you might have like I will when I work with people around healing, I will tell them to acknowledge these other aspects like my child self might be more upset about something that my 52 year old self could care less about, but I'm still reacting to it at 52 because, you know, a little Sally doll over there didn't want to leave the room because she didn't know what she was doing. Okay. And we all have that. So when we start talking about the soul, the soul is all that we've ever been. And one more way that I like to describe this that I think makes sense to people in our times is through video games. Okay. And I did this in the book Spirit Speaker. I talked about how if we have a video game, we might even be playing with other people. And I might have three different characters in that game. And if it's a role playing game, and this actually happened to me, I used to play role playing video games, and I had two characters in playing in the same world. And both of them had extremely different personalities, so much so that one of the people I played with regularly really loved one of my characters and would complain to me about the other character of mine, how much they hated them. They didn't know it was the same person. Okay. <laughs> so we can have these really, they have different skills. They have different abilities. They have different ways that they've developed. Well, those are our incarnations. The player is the higher self. Okay. And so when we talk about the soul, the soul is that higher self who's the player who comes into these different incarnations of reality and sees what happens with this particular mix up they've got. And if we reach a point of awareness that we can be in connection with our higher self, then we start slowly incorporating all of these different elements of our soul that might have come from different time periods. Very interesting. So, yes, that's my answer on what I think the soul is. I, I love it. It's it's beautiful, and and I think that's uh, for many reasons. It's it's a accurate depiction of the soul from my own spiritual research, which is quite extensive. I'll I'll save my thoughts till after Angie shares hers. But thank you, Sally Crow. Yes, I, I, thank I you. find that interesting. Yes, Sally Crow, I really love hearing from you because like in your book, sometimes I've had experiences that 
I really never thought it through about what what it was. And, and you go deeper sometimes and I go, wow, never thought of it that way. But that's exactly a great way to explain that. So I really like just like the soul. It's like thinking of it as multiple aspects. I'm like, that's exactly right. In fact, I had a conversation with my soul and it was like, wait a minute, I was like talking to someone other than me. And I was like, well, what part of me is that if my soul's here? And so it got very deep and I realized that's exactly right. It's like one part of me was saying, you know, feeling something and talking to me about something. And it was like, but it was, it was all me. It was you know, very trippy. So I was just thinking that was a beautiful explanation. And so for me, like the soul is that non-physical part of you, the part of you that transcends when you die, the part that lives forever, that carries our memories, our the information we learn, the stories, you know, when we go into another life, we often carry the wisdom of our other lives, whether they be past lives or parallel lives. All of that is part of the information. So we can't keep our sneakers and our car and our house when we die, but we can keep all the information that we accrue. And that is stored in this soul. And so for me, when I'm working with the soul, especially the time of death, it's very important because the soul... Uh, I can feel it inhabit all parts of your body. And then there's times when it doesn't, like if someone um, doesn't like their belly or they don't like their butt or, you know, some part of their body, you can see soul loss in those parts of their body where now there's room for something to inhabit. And so you can see some of that you have to work with your client because I can feel where the soul is no longer present and there. It's like they withhold love for themselves and that pulls the soul back in certain parts of their body. But at the time of death, what I've experienced is the soul leaving and it's a really beautiful thing. You can feel the soul coming out of the feet and into the ankles. And even your book, I was loving it because it was talking about how you can get stuck in those areas. And it's true. Those joints are really tricky. And they get stuck there. It might be days or two and, and you know, maybe a couple hours. And then they move through into the knee and then into the hip. And, you know, I can feel that. And when I was working with my ex-husband's relatives, I would be able to, I, and I don't, it's like, I didn't have any formal training in death. It's just something intuitively. So I, I feel my soul has done this many times because I'm, how do you know this? I don't know. I just know, but I can feel it. And I can, I will say, you know, this, this body, she's probably going to die in 10 hours or I think in two hours and I can feel it. And then the nurse will come in and do all these oxygen you know, tests and all these other tests and go, oh yeah, there's probably about two more hours to go with all their medical technology, but I can feel it. But even with that, it can stop and start depending on that soul. And so you can get a feeling, okay, it's going. And sometimes it's very fast. I'm like, okay, they're going. I can feel it just right out the crown of their head. Mm-hmm. And other times it's stuck. You know, like the heart is a big one too. Sometimes it's stuck there for a very long time. And so you can feel this emptiness and literally you can feel it. So if you start getting in tune with this, you can just put your hand and trace it above the body. You can feel from their heart down to their feet. And it's like this emptiness. And then you feel this vibrational energy at the top part of them. And then you can feel it outside their crown. And you're like, whoa, it's way over out here outside their body. And so that's a beautiful thing that I was able to experience when I was working with those people that were passing on and kind of kind of get a clue of where they're at in their death process and how quickly or smoothly it's going. My conception of the soul, which I've spent my whole life investigating for a variety of reasons. And I've studied, uh, my last count was about 124 books on the soul, most of which conflict with each other and none of which except two that I've found tell you anything about how to work with your soul, which I've always found paradoxical. Even, I don't remember the guy's name. Um, I think it's Michael Singer. Anyhow, it's a very famous book on the soul, but there's nothing in it about how to work with your soul. And I've always found that a paradox because how can you know enough about the soul to write a book, but not tell anyone how to work with their soul, which is something I resolved through my teachings in the Institute 
because I think that's critical. Simply put, I define the soul as consciousness within. I also define love as consciousness becoming aware of itself. And in this context, God is consciousness. It is only because God exists that we're conscious. God is the basis of self-awareness. All that is, is God's self. God is experiencing itself. Rumi says, you are not a drop of the ocean. You are the ocean in a drop. By definition, God is unconditional love. And so I went to God in meditation and said, if you're unconditional love, then how do we get all these conditions? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's conflict. There's got to be something. I can't get around this one, so I need your help. And so what God told me was, I am unconditional love. But in order to love myself unconditionally, I had to create conditions, and the conditions are individuation, and each soul is a unique expression of me, and I dream myself into existence so that I can have a love relationship with myself and love myself unconditionally. And in these types of conversations, I said, well, then why all the evil and why all the pain and all the suffering? And God told me, I cannot possibly know myself if I only know the good parts of myself, because good cannot have any meaning without its relative opposite. So I fully explore all potentials of myself. So even the souls on earth that you think of as evil or people that are harmful, be it Adolf Hitler or anybody like that, are actually me exploring myself. And God said to me, you must understand, I cannot die. It's impossible for me to die. And yet it's impossible for you to die because you are me. So each soul is a unique expression of me through which I gain self-reflection and come to know myself. And so the soul really is God expressing its unique, one of a myriad or infinite unique potentials, just as we all have all of our experiences of all of our lifetimes are stored as memory within the soul. Every single being of any type anywhere in the universe is God, and that soul is storing its information in what we would call the mind of God. And that's how God experiences itself. The Akashic Records is really a, a, a record of God's experiences in this universe. Without getting complicated, because there's a lot more I could say on it, but it would be very complex, which is why I teach entire courses on this. Uh, I agree with everything you guys have said from my own experience. I, I will just add an, ex an example of, of an experience that parallels something both of you have shared. When I was, I think, 46, maybe 47, <laughs> much to my shock, my soul told me to become a vegetarian, which I didn't like at all. I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, my parents are, my mother's from Alsace. My family, my family genes come from Alsace Lorraine, which is between France and Germany. And my gene line needs meat. You, anybody that has parents that come from where the ground freezes in the winter has genes that need meat. Grass, uh, plants don't grow out of ice. So being a vegetarian with parents that come from, a place where the ground freezes sets you up for a lot of trouble. And I've rehabilitated a countless long, long string of them for these problems. And so I was saying to my soul, why on earth do you want me to do that? I, I did it. My mother had me become a vegetarian with her when I was 13 because Yogananda wanted everybody to be a vegetarian. And within six months, I felt terrible. I couldn't think. 
I started getting colds and flus. My mother took me to a naturopathic physician and, and she said, he tested my blood. He said, your child is anemic and he needs to eat meat. If you take him home and feed him some meat, he'll be fine. Within three hours, I felt like my soul had returned into my body. So in this process, my soul said, I need to teach you some things that will be much easier to teach you if you don't have the souls of animals in your body, because the density of that stops you from reaching higher vibrational levels where I need to take you at this time in your life. So every morning at 3.30, I would be woken up by my soul, which happens to this very day. And I would go to my office and I would begin using shamanic practices. And my soul would guide me in different drumming practices, rattling practice, the use of gemstones, healing prayers. I was simultaneously doing Egyptian sun gazing. This went on for an entire year before my soul told me that I could begin to eat eggs and fish. And in that year, I was also doing a lot of healing work with people, and I had been for many, many years. But what would happen was I would be working with somebody, and I would connect to their soul, and I would say, what would you like me to do to help your body mind? And they would say, or my soul would say, use the rattles. And all of a sudden, I would know exactly what to do. And I would know exactly what to do with drums and with healing wands and all sorts of things. But I hadn't really studied a lot of these things. So I said to my soul, how is it that I know what to do? And my soul said, you've done this in many past lifetimes. You've been a doctor and a healer many times. And you're remembering what you've already done many times. And I'm opening the gate for you. That's why I needed you to be on a vegetarian diet so that you could open yourself to the higher dimensions and gain information from your own past lives. So uh, I make this point to, to share that it was through that process I started having a lot of past life memories and visions of me doing different things and being a doctor. In fact, I remember a very profound vision of me in the Middle East somewhere traveling door to door on a camel and it, interestingly, I was with a guy who I know in this lifetime who's a shaman, and he was. Except I wasn't. Uh, he was. He was. He was a salesman that sold things that we would call medical supplies, like herbs and wraps and things. And this is probably 750 years ago. And I was what we would call today a naturopathic physician. And him and I used to travel the same routes together. So these are the kinds of experiences that. Uh, help me understand. And this is why Sally Crow, as you were giving your explanation, I was like, oh yes, I, I'm totally in tune with that experience. My next question is heaven and hell. We've touched on this, so you can share what you guys feel. Sally Crow, I found, in your, com I found your commentary in your book regarding heaven and hell worthy of, of discussion here. Could you share your thoughts uh, and experiences in this regard? And then Angie, I'd like you to share your regard thoughts on the regards to heaven and hell in the afterlife. I just my soul led me. I when I took your book, Sally Crow, I asked my soul to guide me to what to read. And I saw your commentary on heaven and hell, and I really thought that was important. So that's why it's in the outline today. I'd love it if you share your thoughts in that regard. Sure. So I just tell people that, you know, I've been a professional medium for the last 20 years um, plus. And in that time, I've never met anybody who's been to heaven and I've never met anybody who's been to hell. And 
It's not that I don't necessarily believe that those places exist. I just don't believe that we get there on one shot. You know, that's having had past life memory since I was a child. And also I've met people who have, who have done bad things who are in the spirit world. And what I find actually happens is that if we cross into spirit and we have things that we have to, you know, look at things that we've done or things that have been done to us, that we are usually put into what I refer to as timeout you can consider it a, a limbo space, but it isn't really completely limbo because you are doing something there. You're reviewing how, you know, your actions, how they affected your life, how they affected other people's lives. And, but I've never actually met anybody who's gone to heaven or hell. I am a firm believer in reincarnation. I, like you were saying, Paul, one of the things I've really noticed is that as a teacher, most people that I meet, I'd say that if you're, if I tell somebody when I'm doing a reading that they're a natural at something, it means they've done it for more than three lifetimes. And that also means that they are going to display examples of skill in an area that they have never trained in. So, you know, I say that I'm a natural psychic medium. I've had these experiences. If you're like that, you're going to have it like you, Angie, you didn't want it when you were growing up because you thought that it wasn't safe or good, but you still had them. You didn't have a choice because you'd be considered somebody who is a natural at that. And when you go talk about healing, when I first started doing Reiki, I got my first Reiki attunement. I was immediately doing shamanic things. Immediately. I would call my teacher and I'd be like, how come I feel like I should blow into this person's heart chakra? How come I feel like I should be sucking something out of them? How come I feel like I should be doing this? And he'd be like, Sally, that's not Reiki, that's shamanism. And, you know, that led me to finally looking at memories I had from past lives when I was a little kid and having to accept it. And interestingly enough, what I found was that I did not have a fear at all of the spirit world and that that was not where my fears around shamanism came from. My fears around shamanism came from loneliness because one of the things I tell people is the water that the shaman drinks from is often too deep for most people. So nobody invites Joe the shaman over for coffee, okay? Because if stuff is going on in your life and your friend is that deep, that's usually the person you avoid unless you're ready to look at it yourself. Right. So those of us who are in that weird department, we really value the people who become our true friends that we can talk to about anything because for most people... If they're not taking a class with you or things aren't going haywire in their life, you might be a little too much. You yeah. Know? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. A lot of it is because of carrying this knowledge. So, you know, I believe that, you know, even Christianity talked about reincarnation until, you know, it got like dumbed down. Okay. Like it is a common belief in most religions. So my thought goes to more that of reincarnation without any real belief in an absolute heaven or an absolute hell, at least not in a one shot experience. Great. Angie? Yeah. So in my experience uh, through shaman school, you know, we started exploring the middle world, which is where we're at now. And it's often where the spirits reside that haven't passed on. And then what we discovered is there's an upper world and a lower world. 
So we were asked to take journeys to the upper world and figure out what that was like. And so when I was exploring the upper world, I found it very angelic and there was a lot of saints and mystics and, you know, a lot of these higher vibrations there. Um, so I'm like, well, then maybe that's heaven, you know, but that maybe that's correlation to upper world. But what I, when we said, now we're going to do a, a journey to the lower world, it wasn't hell. It was actually very uh, lush and jungle-like and there was a lot of animals and it was beautiful. And it was like, the way I could best describe it is if you would see the earth without it being screwed up by humans, you know, it's like in its natural state with just everything vibrant. And, and, and I'm like, wow, when I die, I want to go to the lower world. This is not hell at all. This is fantastic. <laughs> and so um, that was the shocker for me. It was like, I couldn't find a hell in the afterlife. I couldn't find a hell anywhere. In fact, there was all um, all these different dimensions. In fact, one of our exercises in school was to go up into the upper world and continue up as high as you could go. And I remember going, okay, I'm going to go up, 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 up. And the next thing I know, I found myself in the lower world. And I was like, well, that's trippy. And when I got out of that state, I was really dizzy and disoriented. I'm like, well, that was just, I was just like, and what came to me as a vision, because the next exercise was to go to the lower world and go as low as you could go. And I would go down, down, down. And, and all of a sudden I was in the upper world. And so the vision was kind of like an infinity symbol, you know, like, like a timer or something you would, yes. you would, you would go up and you could just, it loops around. And so it's all connected. And so then what I w realized is that when you die, you can choose to go anywhere. It doesn't mean you have to stay. It's kind of like when you're born, you can choose to go anywhere. You don't have to stay in California. If you were born in California, you can move anywhere in the world and you can travel every, anywhere you want. You have that free will, just like you do in the afterlife. So you might say, oh, I'm going to go up to the light and go up to this area that looks Larry Fairy, but then you might go, well, I'm going to go back and visit my relatives on the, in the middle world. And I might go into this jungle lush vegetation and hang out with the animals. And, and so there's all these different realms that are available. And so that's what I th thought was amazing. It's like, wait, there's way more to the afterlife than we think. And so there's multiple dimensions and, and there's places where just, they're just beautiful places where the soul can, you know, rest in the, in the ethers. And there's just like, wow, I saw things like you describe where, when the souls need to learn, they go into these chambers, like you said, and I've seen crystal chambers where they were souls are brought in. So the light of the crystals can dissolve some of that charge that they were carrying and they couldn't ba go back into a life until they remove some of that charge because it was just so heavy. And so they would just be cleansing with crystals. And so I've seen all these different things. In fact, a recent um, uh, client came to me asking to speak to her past brother. And she said, you know, asked, what is he doing there in the afterlife? And he says, I'm studying, you know, and I thought that was pretty interesting because he was, he was learning. He goes, I'm learning. And she's like, what is he learning about? And I, he goes, I said, are you going to come back? He goes, well, that's the idea. And he had this like, and it was really funny because when I do that work, I, I feel the personality of the soul come out and they still have that same personality, the same disposition. So mm -hmm. he was just like so funny and sarcastic. Like, was he really sarcastic when he was alive? And she's like, oh my gosh, yes. I'm like, okay, good. You know, and so that's really funny for me too. Like uh, another recent one, there was this um, man who, uh, who was her um, ex-husband and he was just, when I'd ask questions, he'd be like, yes, no. Yes. And I'm like, you know what? I'm like, does he not have a lot of emotion? Was he just, you know, she's like, oh yeah, he was, he never spoke about his emotion. So he was very dry in, in the answer. So finally I was like, listen, you need to give me something because all these yes, no questions don't validate what you're saying. I said, she needs to know. So then he started sharing with me like, okay, tell her that I know that she has a box with all my letters in it and there's seashells on the bottom. And, 
and that sort of thing. And then I was like, thank you. Because then she's like, I do it. And I'm like, okay, because your yes, no answers are not getting us anywhere. And that's, she might feel a little comfort, but she might have this doubt like, well, Angie's just saying yes or no. So sometimes I have to prod people in that space to, to get there. But back to the question is, yeah, so I'd never have, just like Sally Crow, I've never seen a, a hell. I've seen some really beautiful places that you could describe as heaven, but I've never seen the, uh, a place where people are burning in hell. Cool. Uh, very interesting from both of you. Thank you. I, I'm, I've, I think it's just got to be delicious for the listeners to get this kind of depth of exposure uh, because these are not things, as you know, that are commonly talked about in even in a lot of books. I mean, like I said, I've read oh probably 130 or more books on the soul, maybe 150. I have an entire row of them on a big bookshelf, and uh, you 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 get all sorts of stuff, but most of it I think is just cut and paste from other people's ideas. It's not authentic experiences. And I think that's one of the problems with books is so many people that write books don't really have any authentic experience. It's just, they're desperate to get some kind of attention. So they just throw stuff together and call it truth. Hi, everybody. My family and I love Organifi's green juices. You can get your green juice in two excellent flavors, crisp apple and original mint. Not only are these products made with certified organic ingredients to support your family's nutritional needs, they each have some unique benefits. Your green juice crisp apple eases stress with an effective dose of 600 milligrams of ashwagandha per serving. Helps reduce cortisol spikes that increase snacking urges and aids keeping your blood sugar balanced. Why snack on inferior foods that lack nutrition and often lead to blood sugar spikes followed by blood sugar crashes when Organifi's green juices are super healthy, taste great, and are as quick to make as opening the package and adding water. Your green juice crisp apple is made from fresh apples picked right off the branch and are packed with micronutrients to support your body's needs. Green Juice Original Mint contains ashwagandha, chlorella, and spirulina. Reset your body every morning with 11 detoxifying superfoods. You'll love the delicious taste and your body will feel strong and stable with all the micronutrients in each serving. Green Juice Original Mint promotes balanced cortisol and stress levels, perfect for weight management and helps rid the body of harmful toxins. Personally, I'm super grateful that Organifi makes such excellent, easy-to-use drinks and foods that keep us energized, healthy, and clean inside while decreasing the urge to crave on inferior snack foods. My kids love both flavors and I love knowing that we can all be healthy together with Organifi's excellent crisp apple and original mint green juices. These products are excellent for work, on the road, sharing with friends, and anytime you need a nutritious boost that tastes good. To get your crisp apple and original mint green juices, go to O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash check 20. That's Organifi dot com forward slash check 20. Save 20% on your purchase using the code CHECK20, all caps, on checkout. Don't worry if you forget your Living 4D discount code because you'll see it right there on the landing page. Enjoy Organifi's excellent green juices. My experience of heaven and hell uh, is similar but different to both of yours. You, you know, I'm sort of a, a, a scientist investigator and I do a lot of spiritual research uh, through meditation, Tai Chi, and contemplative meditation and plant medicine work, where I take big questions like this, and I will do a ceremony 
and let my soul guide me in whichever process I'm using. And then I'll hold that intention. And that's my only intention. And oftentimes, as Angie can tell you, I will go into meditation, paint a mandala. So if I'm saying, is there a heaven and hell, I will paint a mandala and I'll let my soul paint it for me. And that becomes my antenna that brings me to the frequency dimension in consciousness where I can get answers to these questions. So uh, sometimes it can be a, a, a quite a process I go through. But what I found through all my work is that each soul begins as unconditional love, the frequency of which is infinity, but because God dreams each soul into a role to express God's own potential and to experience that potential, but gives us each free will, that the soul comes in and as it takes on a body in whatever dimension it's in, it takes a frequency dimension that resonates with that dimension. So just like you can strike the tuning fork C next to a piano and it automatically will play like there's somebody at the piano at a sympathetic resonance. Once we begin our mission as an emissary of God, we pick up a frequency that is in resonance with the environment, the people, the family, the place, the time that we're in. Then we go on our journey through multiple lifetimes and our frequency changes. So if we choose a dark path and the path of, of, of uh, the negative, then we pick up a negative vibration. If we choose a path of love and service, then we pick up a positive vibration. So if you think of zero as the reference line, that would be unconditional lover God. You can take that positive line up to very, very high heights, like Angie described, going up and meeting sages and saints. Or you can take the negative line and go down and meet equally intelligent sorcerers and tricksters that are also consciously or unconsciously working for God, but are creating different dimensions and working in different dimensions. So what I found is working through these different vibrations and working with so many souls in, in health crisis over my life, I could pick up their resonant vibration as a shaman. When I'm tracking people in very deep shamanic ceremonies, I people seem to come to me that want to go real deep, like they want to have the death experience. So I've had, I've taken multiple people into the death experience. So I have to track that soul. So I go through a process with them where I pick up their vibration, like a dog gets your scent and I can track them as their souls leaving their body in the ceremony. And if they get into a dangerous place or whatever, I will then get the soul. I will travel like I do when I'm remote viewing or spirit traveling, and I will actually grab the soul and bring it back and put it back in its body. And so what I have found is, is that there is a range of frequencies. And with regard to this concept of heaven and hell, my soul has taken me to these very, very high dimensions, very much like you described, Angie, and I don't think I've ever talked to you directly about this. The experience is very interesting because I found myself, for example, I was once on the sun, but I wasn't trying to remote view. I was actually doing this kind of research, and I found myself on the sun in this gorgeous, like stunningly beautiful ballroom in this magnificent palace. And everybody was dancing and it, it, it wasn't necessarily a specific celebration. It was just the way they lived there. They were all just very attuned to God consciousness and they were just celebrating being alive. And interestingly, Rumi was there dancing and I was shocked to see Rumi there because he's a soul guide to me. 
And so I started talking to him and he was saying, you know, have fun, enjoy yourself, you know, let it live, love. And, and so my mind wanted to come back to the earth and, and think about my family or things like that because I was in such an intense experience. Part of me was saying, why do I want to go back? But then I was thinking, you know, I've got children, I've got an institute, I've got responsibilities. And so my soul said something very interesting to me in this experience. I, my soul said, Paul, how long can you stay in heaven? And I thought about it for a minute while I was in this experience, and I could feel this pull to come back to my family and, and that if I stayed there, I would my body would die. And so I thought about it and I said back to my soul, as long as you can. And my soul said, that's correct. Anyone can be in these vibrations, but if their reason they came to the world is not in resonance with it, it's very hard to stay there because you can't fulfill your mission. It's almost like you're at the wrong GPS coordinates. <clears throat> you're delivering a package to the wrong house. So I found working with different souls that when they die, they're actually go into a frequency lock with the resonant level of the soul's evolution as a spiritual being. And they will then find themselves surrounded by people that are at relatively the same level with the exception of guides that are there to help them heal, cleanse, purify, process. But they're, they're, it's just like I'm Sally Crow and Angie, you know, how many times have you taught a class and you realize almost everybody in the class is suffering from the same kind of challenge? Mm -hmm. There's tons of people going through it's a divorce. Not even just classes. Yeah, no, it's everywhere. Right. It's not even yeah, in the airplane. It's everywhere. Yes. <laughs> At the grocery store. Mm -hmm. It's like you you're in it with soul groups and they're traveling everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. A good example is once I got on an airplane to fly to the East Coast to take a class, which is an advanced mobilization class. I think it was for the upper cervical spine. I mean, you know, this is a very specific type of training for very few people because you have to have a lot of training even to get to a class like that. I sit down in the airplane as we're rolling down the taxiway. The guy next to me says, hi, shakes my hand. I'm Jim. I'm Paul. I go, he goes, what are you doing? Where are you headed? And I said, oh, I'm headed. I, I can't remember New York or whatever. He goes, oh yeah, me too. He says, what are you going to do? I said, oh, I'm taking class with such and such instructor on, on uh, advanced manual mobilization of the spine. He goes, oh, I'm in the same class. And I'm like, okay, there's 357 cool. air people on this airplane. You know, we're on a Boeing something big. 350 people and the one guy in a class of about 10 people is sitting right next to me. And I've had many, many experiences like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So my, in summary, what I'm saying is we are all ultimately unconditional love, which is mathematically a zero, but because God is a zero, God has to dream or imagine us into existence, which creates an imaginary number, which in quantum physics is the square root of minus one which actually turns out to be a, a very useful coordinate system. And so all our dreams are actually the minus one or what Bohm would call the implicate domain of spirit. And it frequency locks with the physical domain. So we create around us what we create inside of ourselves. And as we evolve spiritually, our frequency begins to rise because we crave to be what we really are. And the only thing that can satiate our heart is what we really are, which is unconditional love. So as we evolve, 
we get closer and closer to an actual frequency lock with zero, but people don't want to go there because you have to completely and utterly let go of your memory of all past lives. Once the drop returns to the ocean, the drop extinguishes. The challenge, though, is you don't know where you're going to come out next. You could be a cockroach. You could be a bug. You could be a star because God's very tricky and up to everything and loves a good show and loves a good joke and loves a good mystery. So for me, heaven and hell really are all about frequency. We can all see then, even though we have very different expressions, we can see why we meet people in the afterlife that are in these very different experiences, you know, and I, I, I kind of scientifically break it down into frequency and resonance. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like the frequency piece. Yeah. I mean, you know, unconditional love can only be represented by zero because the zero represents something that's no thing yet everything at the same time. And infinity is zero with a twist. So if you if you realize that unconditional love has to create conditions by dreaming itself into existence, then ultimately you have an imaginary number. So wherever we go, it has to be something tangible. There has to be a, a, a way to represent that. So that can be a frequency. The way I tell my students is, look, if I can give you my phone number, it's a 10 digit number. If you're one number off, you won't get Paul check. You'll get somebody else. So each soul has a resonant frequency. And that's why whenever we think of anybody that's in the afterlife, they can't help but feel us thinking about them because we're actually consciously going into a frequency lock with them. So if I dial Sally Crow's phone number or Angie's phone number, I'm sending out a microwave frequency that goes into sympathetic resonance and it makes her phone ring. It connects us. So for me, heaven and hell are really just could easily be broken down into lower vibrational realms and experiences, all of which are God, and higher vibrational realms, all of which are God. But the experience is unique to that frequency domain. And I think it's important for people to realize that even if you've done terrible things in your life, I've worked with people that have murdered people. I've worked with people that have had sex with animals. I mean, I've seen everything. In 40 years, I've seen everything. Nothing shocks me anymore. And I always remind them, look, you're God. I'm not saying keep doing stuff like that. I'm saying go to your heart and ask your heart for guidance and ask yourself what would love do now. If you want God's advice, just ask what would love do now. And if you're honest, you've got God's advice. But know that whatever you're doing is an experience that God wants to have or you wouldn't be here doing it. And we each have some degree of free will within you know, how well we follow our life path. Now, the next question is on the meaning of life and the necessity of death. So what do each of you feel the meaning and function of life in the physical body is? For example, do we need a physical body to live, learn, and grow? And what is the function of and necessity of death? You want to start this time, Angie? So, yes, um, the function of life, I think, is to learn, to explore. Uh, We take on bodies. And, you know, what I've seen in in my shamanic um, schooling is that there's actually a room where souls actually meet and congregate and decide what they need to learn or what they'd like to feel in life. And so they say, okay, at this time in my life, could you whatever to me? And so you make these soul contracts. And in that experience, you meet a bunch of key players in your life that are going to mold you into what experience you want to have on this earth plane. And then I've also seen once you've made those soul contracts, another room where you choose the body that's exactly what you need to feel exactly what you want to experience. 
So, you know, I, I tell everybody, you, your body is a, a good clue to who you are and what you're supposed to do here. Like I'm five foot one. I'm clearly not just supposed to play basketball in my life, at least not professional basketball, <laughs> because I'm just way too short. Had that been my sole path, I would have had way longer legs and different parents to support that. And so you recognize that there's things that you're good at and recognize things that you're not so good at. And so chances are the things you're good at are things you should explore because that's either something from a past life or parallel life that you've done already. Like you said, you've already had experiences on the earth plane. So the function of life is to come in and to explore that which you needed exploring. And oftentimes I find that souls come because maybe when they go into the afterlife, they realize how much they hurt someone and went, wow, I had no idea. I would like to come back and experience that pain so I know for sure what it was like and so that I can really let go of that feeling. And so sometimes we take on that the other side of that feeling. So it's like if you murdered someone, I may, you might want to take on the, uh, a life where you get murdered so you can see what it felt like and understand what you truly did. And so I see some of that happening in conversations. And so this experience of having a body is very powerful because it does age. And I think when we say, okay, I'm going to go to this, I'm going to have a life experience. I'm going to learn all these things. But if we didn't age, you would be, think you had forever. And chances are you'd lose track of your mission because you're like, oh, I'm eternal. But because you're looking at yourself like, hey, I, I could die. I got to get, I got to write that book. I got to tell those stories. I got to do this in my life because I'm not going to be here forever. So it creates a sense of urgency for the soul. So it's, that's part of the illusion of dying. It's like, I, I need that to, it's kind of like the, the fire underneath your butt like a timeline it's like snap snap you're gonna you know this is gonna end i mean the funny part of that story is that you can come back and do it again and again and again so i find that people sometimes take lives and they never fulfill their job purpose and they're they i'm like that's all right you can come back and do this 600 more times before you actually get it right but i feel that that part of having a body is very important because it does, you know, there's like a deadline, you know, and deadlines, we love deadlines. And so it's like, hey, they're, they're, you're going to die and you'll have to come back. And so that's what's really, really important about it. And I find that working in the afterlife, it's really hard to do those things without a body. It's like you might want to create connection in certain families. And it's like now you're trying to talk to them without, you know, a real voice. And so you're speaking to them in their dreams and it becomes very challenging. So it's like, it's easier to do the work when you're here and talk to those family members now than it is to try to talk to them when you're in, in the other realm. And so we take on a body because I, I feel that work is much easier. I love the term deadline. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I said that I'm like, that was apropos. <laughs> So. Sally Crow, you want to share your concepts in this regard? Sure. Um, so I also think that we come here to learn. I Because my clients are really, I say, pretty normal, which is, you know, hard to explain to people, but you guys get it. Like, I am much weirder than my clients are. <laughs> like, um, so I try to use really simple terminology that isn't going to feel threatening or overwhelming. And I talk about agendas um, because I've done precognitive work. You know, I've done divination publicly for over 30 years. I explain to people that we come in and, you know, um, not everything is set in stone in the path that we're going to take, but we have certain things that we've put on our agenda. 
and that those things are harder to get around. So they'll, we'll keep coming back to them over and over and over again. Those would be considered karmic, if you will, or, you know, those, those lessons we've chosen to learn. And so your deadline example, Angie, fits right into that, that, you know, we have this agenda, but this agenda has an ending too. And that not everything we're doing is about us. We could live a life where we're going to die at four years old. And that just seems tragic. And like your life was somehow stolen from you. But what if your whole purpose in that lifetime was for your family to learn how to heal and to move on after having such a trauma? Because I've had, you know, clients who that is the case. And I have clients who have now taken that child who um, died at two from sudden infant death, death syndrome. And, you know, like 20 years later, they've been able to recognize the full potential of that child's soul and now communicate with their lost child in a different way, seeing that they're not just that child, they're also a much bigger, more infinite soul that has much more knowledge than maybe a two-year-old would. Um, so we we come in for experience. Sometimes it does take us more than one lifetime to get it. Sometimes we're here on what I call a vacation life. We meet people who everything in their life just seems like really simple. They never have much conflict. They might not be, you know, like loaded or have a super high career, but they, they aren't struggling. They have, nobody hates them. They, you know, they don't owe anybody anything. And I just call those vacation lives. And what I find is often that if somebody's had a vacation life, <laughs> they're going to have a life in which they might serve as that sick child, you know, like kind of like the balancing out of that. Um, so I believe that we come in to have experiences. I, I do believe that we can learn when we are in spirit though. So one of the interesting things that I talk about is that I've worked with the same spirit for over 20 years, who was my youngest sister's best friend. And um, I always loved him, even though I don't generally, her friends and I are not the same ilk of people. And, but I always loved him. And when he died, he ended up, I understood why, because we had a deeper soul connection. I worked with him for like 20 years with him playing the role of what I call my doorman, which is just when I'm doing a spirit communication session, he watches the door and makes sure that because I've often had offices near places where there was a lot of dead people, like near senior centers or, you know, places where I'm going to get a lot of not negative spirits, but I call them um, vagabond spirits. They're just they see the light on and they're coming for the party. Um, so in working with him, one of the interesting things that happened to me was when I first put writing into my publisher and he looked at it, he wrote back to me and said that I was a very good writer, but that I wrote like a journalist. And interestingly enough, I had already been working with this spirit for over 10 years and he had been a journalist in life. <laughs> mm. Okay. So now he's moved on. All right. Like just recently, this is a strange thing that's happened. And I knew it was going to happen 20 years ago. He told me he wouldn't be with me forever, but he's moved on. And I got a new doorman who she was an animal communicator in life and a friend of mine. And she actually told me that the reason why she wanted the job was that she wanted to be better at spirit communication. And that if she worked with me, just like he did for a big chunk of time, she was going to be better at it when she was alive. 
because she would understand the communication better. And I feel that that's true too. Like people who are natural mediums in life are much better to communicate with in death. Just like Paul, you talk about communicating with people like Rumi and stuff. Spiritual leaders are going to be amazing in spirit communication because they have already evolved to a certain level where that is something that's part of their perception. Yes. Okay. So I think I might've gotten myself on a little tangent there, but it really comes back to the fact that our soul does have a purpose. We do come here to learn. Not all of us, like my experience with living and learning in death is that when people die, if they have a lot of work that is left over from their life, like things they have to process, they're going to spend a lot of their time doing that. And then like you described it with rooms, Angie, they will go into a planning stage before their next lifetime. People who are more evolved souls might immediately become people's spirit guides. Like they're now watching over family members. They're no longer watching over friends or people they've shared other lifetimes with. So I fully expect when I die that I'll still be working. (laughs) (laughs) But it'll be a hobby. (laughs) It'll be my life path or my death path, not my job. Just think how much you'll have in your pension plan. I know, right? You'll be, you'll be, you'll be a billionaire. (laughs) That's right, right. What does, but really, when you start moving through your soul path, you start going again, like, what does money matter? Yeah. Does, you know, I mean, money matters so that we can pay our bills and we can eat and have experiences, but, you know, all the people with like ridiculous amounts of money that they're hoarding, you want to be like, dude, you don't get to take that with you. Like, it's not going to transfer over in currency and death. Yes. Well, I think in the Bible, Jesus says a rich man can no sooner get to heaven than a camel can fit through the eye of a needle, right? And I think that says it all. You, right. All you take with you when you leave is what you've become, because that's all that's important to God, right. really. My way of expressing this is is slightly different than both of yours, which I think is beautiful. But the way I would describe it is, I'm going to use a fairly graphic illustration to make the point. You know, we can dream of having sex with somebody and we can even have wet dreams, which I have had multiple of and they've always shocked me. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. But, you know, if you really, as a soul, you're you're dealing with a higher vibration, non-physical being, right? So if you want to have sex with somebody There's a degree of concentration. There's mental sex, the idea of it, thinking about it. There's emotional sex, which adds more uh, depth and juice to it. But if there's a body, like, you know, like if I'm dreaming about having sex with Angie, that's beautiful. If I'm emotionalizing it, what it really wants me to do is it makes me want to touch her and, and, you know, merge with her, right? So for me, I think that just as the universe is a condensation of the consciousness of God's dreaming, I think the physical body is something that the soul craves as a means of a concentrated experience so that using the analogy of sex, it it goes from the dreaming to the emotion to the tangibility and the exchange of, of a deeper level of shall we say, material reality, materiality. 
So it's, it's, you know, like if we dream of building a new house, but all we do is dream about it, we don't ever get to sleep in it or light a fire in the fireplace except in our imagination. So for me, I think that life is the condensation of our dreaming or our fantasizing. You know, if somebody wants to be, you know, let's say they want to be a special forces soldier and really experience the rigors and the intensity of war, there's nothing more real than a physical war, you know? So I think just like there's the quote from Rumi, God sleeps in the minerals, dreams in the plants, moves in the animals, and realizes himself in man. So what you're seeing is a step of a, a shift in vibrational reality, right? A, a process unfolding. So for me, I think we come into a physical body because we have either things we really want to learn, but you you learn by experiencing. Thinking about driving a car or playing golf doesn't make you better at driving a car or playing golf. Only at the level that you're you're at. So if you're you can become a mental race car driver and be the champion of the world, but you'll never know how true it is until you're in a race car. So for me, my experiences of looking into myself and looking into these issues, I, I see really a process of condensation. You know, think how much atmosphere it takes to make a drop of dew, right? You could take all the water in the atmosphere in this room and you might get one drop as a metaphor. So all of our dreaming and all of our thinking and all of our emoting ultimately manifests in the physical drop of the condensation of the experience and you know it is said in many metaphysical texts that the angels have great respect for us in human bodies because the polarities are so intense in a material body and they you know they realize from their perspective how intense it is so i think one of the reasons that we need the death experiences because some of the things we're dreaming about experiencing, like being a special forces soldier, how many tours of duty before you're just in such a state of PTSD that you're wishing you were dead. We, right. we, we need that chance to, to, to at, become the atmosphere again and take away the stress of it and redream. So I think if we don't have the concentration of experience, we don't have the density of learning and the density of learning and experiencing is God's own experience. But then we also want to naturally say, okay, now that I've been the special forces soldier or the great lover, how else can I explore? So I think really it's it's almost like the hydrological cycle. First, the sunny day, you can't see the water, but then the clouds form and then all of a sudden the water comes to the earth and next thing you know, the water is a sunflower or it's being drunk by a deer and it's having the experience of being a deer. But then the deer pees it out and it goes into the stream. And the next thing you know, it's in the clouds again. And next thing you know, it's a clear, sunny day. So I think for me, it's, it's about the concentration of the dreaming into reality and out of reality back to dreaming. That's my best way to put it. Absolutely. And I do think that the experience of being physical is something we really appreciate because I cannot tell you how many, well, first of all, I do a lot of one-on-one sessions with people and a lot of people will come back. Sometimes people will come every six months after their partner has died. And I always joke and I say, I know I can be like, well, I know that you had a frisky relationship. I know because I can feel that person's desire being with a medium where making their, 
in the when you're dead, being with a medium, your emotions get turned back up to be more like being in life. And it's not that I'm going to go smack someone's bottom, but I might think about it because that spirit is thinking about mm-hmm. it. Do you know what I mean? Like they're showing me like, oh, they had a frisky relationship. The same thing happens when they talk about their love of chocolate pie, though. Like I will know that like it wasn't just a chocolate bar they loved. They loved a particular type of chocolate bar because they might be remembering that just as fully that physical sensation of eating the physical sensation of sex like you said the physical sensation of hugging somebody you know yes i talk to my father all the time who's dead but in a few times since he's died i have been in such a deep trance state that i have been able to feel him give me a physical what felt like a physical hug that's something we don't really get when we're dead. We miss those physical sensations and all that they bring to us. Hello, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I suspect you've heard me speak about the Czech Academy on my podcast, and I'd love to extend a very special offer we've created for all of you. We created the Czech Academy so that anyone wanting to master a truly holistic approach to living, rehabilitation, strength and conditioning, athlete development, or holistic lifestyle coaching can gain mastery with the guidance and the support of true masters, the Czech Institute instructors and mentors. The Czech Academy is ideal for anyone wanting a career change to enhance their professional skills and meet the demands of the public today and is a multidisciplinary program. We have doctors and therapists of many types and encourage cross-pollination because none of us has the full range of expertise to handle all the challenges people commonly present with today. We encourage all Czech professionals to network with other experts and to learn and grow by working together for the betterment of all, and particularly the patients and clients. The Czech Academy Open House is an opportunity for anyone interested in the Academy to get a taste of the Academy learning experience. The Open House is free to everyone. The Open House provides seven days of access to the Czech Academy e-learning platform, and participants will be able to Take select lessons from our online courses, including Integrated Movement Science Level 1 online and Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 2 online. Preview our Academy-exclusive online workshops. Check out our Academy business assets like package templates, client onboarding checklists, and more. Watch group mentor sessions. Hear from current students about how they're applying what they've learned. You will also receive a free Czech career consultation with Gavin Jennings, CEO of the Czech Institute and co-founder of the Czech Academy, so any questions you have can be answered. You can register for the open house right now, but registration for this event ends on September 22nd, so please don't wait to the last minute. To register for the open house, go to chek.group forward slash open dash house. That's check.group forward slash open dash house. Enjoy your free access to the Czech Academy and feel free to talk to Gavin and get all your questions answered. We'd love to have you. And as you all know, the world needs a lot more holistically skilled, open-minded health and exercise professionals right now. And this is your great opportunity to be the best. We have many books and from different cultures and different religions and different time periods, such as the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, At Home in the Universe by Rudolf Steiner, which talks about the death process, as several other books do. Each of them have similarities and differences. And um, 
in my now extensive study of the NDE literature, reincarnation literature, and the teachings of mystics such as Paramahansa, Plotinus, and many others, as we've described, there's not a uniformity in this process, no matter which expert you look at. For example, you can look at the NDE experiences, and some say, oh, I went to a school. Some say I went to heaven. Some say there's seven heavens. Some say there's nine heavens. I mean, I, I look at this and I'm going like, this is very interesting. These all people have had a death experience, but it's not a uniform experience and they're radically different. So my question to you guys, if there is one God and the nature of the soul is consistently an expression of God, why do we have such different accountings of the afterlife process, even from highly evolved human beings or channeled work coming in from spiritual beings? For me, it goes back to my gemstone philosophy of God being, you know, multifaceted and our ability to process being multifaceted. I was on a um, school board like for years and I was on a regional school board. And one of the things that I would find was that I was always the person looking, listening for what people were saying and how they were the same because people really love to argue. And <laughs> yeah. often what I found was that people, would be saying the same thing in different words, maybe describing it differently, but they were talking about the same thing. They actually agreed with each other. And I'd be the person at this ridiculously long meeting, raising my hand and being like, excuse me, but you just said this and you just said this, but these are the same thing in different words. Do you think that we can kind of like agree here? And I think that that's a lot of why these experiences, there probably are multiple layers of heaven, if you will, just like Angie said about going into the higher realms. But some people are only going to go into the higher realms on a shamanic journey and think that that's all there is. You know, it's just like you can be a black belt and you're called a sensei. But I've personally met ninth degree black belts. So obviously you don't know everything at the point that you become a black belt. But for some people, that's as far as their concept will go. While other people will break it down even more into these minute layers in order to get really specific. And I think that if we started to kind of like look at all of those, like overlay them, we'd find that there was a lot more similarities, but some people haven't explored fully one particular thing while others have taken it as far as they could possibly take it. Right. Very good answer. Thank you, Angie. Yeah. So, you know, just like I talk about the birth experience, perhaps you're born in, you know, California where it's warm and sunny. So you would you know, someone would talk about a birth experience going, oh, it's hot. And this, you know, it's the temperature's perfect when you get out of the womb. And then someone's born in Antarctica and they say, no, it's freezing. And I immediately need to be clothed. And I was chilled. And then you would argue that who's having a real birth experience? Well, they both <laughs> had a birth experience, but they're very, very right. different depending on where you, you're, you're coming from. So I think it has to go with Paul's explanation of the frequency and your vibration of when you die, where you go. So that's going to determine what they're going to see. And so they're all right, you know? So no one's, when you see something in the afterlife, there's not one person who is making it up. There's, that's what they saw if they come back and tell us, you know, but it's, that's because it's their perception or their frequency that's bringing them to a certain location. That's very different than what I saw. So if I died and went to the lower world and said, oh, all this beautiful foliage and wow, these beautiful panthers and beautiful birds. And they'd be like, what? no, there's clouds and it's very sterile and there's angels singing and harmonics and, you know, there's uh, harps and, you know, there'll be very different experience. So you know, all, all is the afterlife, but different locations of the afterlife. And that's, that's what I'm seeing. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because a, a, a number of times I've had friends or patients uh, or people that I know have died and sometimes sad things like one of my level four practitioners, sadly, she's a woman and she was a nutritionist and her husband was got himself into trouble, made some bad investments with money and apparently got involved in something criminal and ended up in deep trouble and didn't want to tell his wife, who was my level four practitioner, which is a four year, four years of training and someone I spent a lot of time with. And they had two beautiful children together. And one night he decided to shoot his two kids and his wife, my student, and then killed himself. And so as soon as this was found out by anybody in the community, somebody got a hold of me right away. And it was only about 12 hours after this had happened that I was notified. And this was a close friend of mine. This is somebody I educated for four years and, and spent a lot of time with. Mm -hmm. And it, it was very deeply shocking to me and unexpected, completely unexpected. I said to my soul, I said, can we go check on her? Because I have a feeling, you know, being killed in her sleep like that with her killed children and by her husband, she's going to be in a very deep state of shock and confusion right now. My soul said, yes, I'll take you to her. And I found her kind of hovering in the astral realm. And she was sitting there in a room, like a small room, almost like a round elevator. And her husband was sitting there with her and she was holding the two kids and she was, there's not words to describe how pissed off she was at him. I mean, she was absolutely, utterly beyond, you know, what a mother would be like if someone, right. right. And so she knew she had died, but she was also confused because she died when she was sound asleep and she couldn't tell if she was just having a really bad dream or not. So she had this, she was living it out in the dream, but she couldn't tell really what was going on. But she was very emotionally distraught because she realized whether it was a dream or not, the dream was very nasty and she, and she was acting the dream out. So I, I had to let her know clearly what happened and she recognized me as soon as I showed up. And she was very grateful that I did. Um, and I had to talk to him because he the, the level of sadness, emotional pain and realization of how what he had chosen to do was a very bad choice. So he was in a very, very deep state of grief. As you can imagine, somebody would be that would do something like that. He was already trapped. I think the point that I'm trying to make out here is that having been through a number of these different experiences is that there's, there's a, a very different process depending on circumstance. But I, I think that my answer to why there's so many different things going on is, is quite frankly, because God is so incredibly diverse and multidimensional that God's really up to everything. And it's hard for us to even wrap our heads around the diversity of human beings. I mean, we, we see different skin colors and different nationalities, but if you said to yourself, what's the difference inside of us? Well, it's as different as there are people that have ever been on this planet. And I don't think there's ever another soul that's just like any other soul. 
you know, I say to my students, there will never be anyone ever again, anywhere, nowhere with your fingerprints, your voice, your uniqueness. You are it. That's just a way of saying that there's that much dif differentiation in how God wants to experience everything. And human beings have a tendency to want things to be neatly packaged. Two plus two's got to be four, morning, noon, and night. People don't really like to deal with very much diversity because it makes them think too much or it creates a sense of there's so much that I don't know that I can never know. So we try to create these little boxes. And I, my experience is, is that God is absolutely wild. Uh, God is absolutely, I mean, you, you, it's very hard for a human being to imagine a God with infinite processing power, infinite speed, infinite energy, and infinite intelligence. I mean, how do you with a human mind begin to approach that? So when you say, how many ways can people die? Well, infinitely, really, is what I've experienced. So that's my take on that. I mean, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I can only share what I've experienced and what I've found from investigating it. My next question for you, too, is Paramahansa Yogananda speaking to people that are afraid of dying in a lecture, actually, I've got it in books and I've also heard it from monks. He told the audience, he said, don't be afraid of death. It's like having a thousand orgasms at once. The experience of when, like when your heart stops or when you get shot or what you experience. So as you know, fear of dying is, is pretty much the greatest fear all people have. I'm wondering if you could each share what you feel happens uh, when a human being dies. So like, what is their experience? So what I thought was really interesting when I first started doing this work and working with people passing on, you start kind of getting cocky, like, oh, when your loved ones show up or this particular person you love shows up, that's when they're going to die. And we just wait for that person to show. And what happened to me that I think is really important to share is there's actually two ways a person can die that I've experienced, multiple ways of dying, but when they leave the body. So I've seen people's bodies die and then the soul is leaves the body after it's dead. So so most of the time that's what usually happens. You are in your body and when the body the body ceases to live, the soul has to just shoot out of the body. But I've also seen it the opposite where a person chooses their soul leaves the body and then the soul body goes through the death process. So I thought that was really amazing like in my personal stories um when my ex-husband's parents were dying his father died first and he was the sole caregiver of his, of his wife. And so he did not want to leave. And so he was really fighting death. And so he was in a hospital and he'd get pneumonia and he would struggle and he'd get better and something else would happen. He'd get better. And, and when it finally came to those end states where his body was just as I've had enough, he was going through seizures and cause his, it was like his soul and his body were fighting. And it's like, he wanted to stay in that body and the body is like, I'm tired. I'm done. And he was like, no, and so I remember seeing him go for 24 hours, maybe 48 hours of this seizure, stop, seizuring, stop, you know, and eventually he, his body just left and he was forced out. And he, when that happened, his body completely died. And all of a sudden, this man who was in this severe, intense pain and struggle, and he was biting his tongue, they had to put a leather strap in his mouth to prevent him from biting his tongue off. And he was just fighting mm. it. And when he finally let go, his eyes opened up and he looked up and he saw the most amazing thing. And I was so fixated in his face. I didn't see what he saw, but it was like intuitively, I, I felt that he saw he had a son that died. And I felt that that son was there and he saw him for the first time after so many years and was so happy. It was just like this light on his face, his eyes opened up and he was bright. It was just like, and then he was gone. And I was like, wow. 
oh, wow, that was amazing. And then three months later, his wife started having problems and they didn't know what was wrong with her. We were taking her to the hospital and they couldn't figure it out. And they just called it end of life agitation. And so she, her, you know, she was just kind of like her, her soul was stirring and didn't want to live and maybe wanted to move out of her body and her body was still alive and had a lot of life force in it. So there was this feeling of trying to separate from her body and it couldn't separate. And so we were in the hospital room and we were watching, you know, we'd come by and visit her almost every day and check on her. And on this one particular night, we were in the hospital and my ex-husband says, you know, I'm going to go tell the nurse that we're leaving, but we lived five minutes from the hospital. And she said, you know, we said, please, he was telling the uh, the nurse, I'm going to leave, but if something happens in the middle of the night, please call us and please let us know because we'd like to be here when she dies. And so he was having that conversation. And I was just waiting in the room and she was at this state, very sedated. They had her medicated and she was re- um, relaxed and lying in her uh, room. All her vitals were normal. Nothing looked bad. And just then I see his father who had died just three months ago, the one who had this horrible death with the seizures. And he walks in and I, he comes up to me. So again, an apparition comes up and kisses me on the forehead. And he can, and, and as that moment, she's facing me with her eyes closed. I could see her eyes open up and she sees him. And so we both are looking at him and she starts to turn her head as he walks around the bed. And as he walked around the bed, I saw this boy in the corner with his hands in his pocket with a hat on his head and he was staring at her. And I didn't know who he was, but I was like, wow. And as he turned, she kept on looking. And as soon as they had this complete eye lock on the other side of the bed, you could just see her soul leave the body. And I see this happening just as my ex-husband's coming back in the room. And I said, we're not leaving right now. And he goes, what? I go, she's going. And he's looking around and there's no sign of her dying. She looked per- perfectly peaceful in her bed. And within 10, 15 seconds later, it went beep and all the machines and all these nurses came running in and she had left her body and then her body had died. And so it was, a, it, you know, her soul was gone and her body went through the death process. So quite beautiful when you, when you see those two different ways of dying. And, you know, and then later I asked my ex-husband about the ma- little boy in the corner and he, he said that was my, his brother who had passed on. Who had I had never met, and he says, "Yes, he had this slump posture, and he loved to wear this hat on his head, and so he was there for his mother's death, and so that was quite amazing." That's what I wanted to share about the death process: that it can be so very radically different, but ultimately, when they die, then what happens is based on the soul and their perceptions of what we've talked about already. I haven't had, um, I've I've never actually been standing right there when a human being died. I've just been there when lots of animals died. You know, I was raised on a 140 acre farm and I, I, I was a hunter. Uh, I had an experience one time. I was out working in our fields and a car came. There's a hill right in front of our house. Where the island highway on Vancouver Island ran right along our property. And there's a lot of accidents there because of a sharp, steep hill and people can't see and the sun comes such that when you're coming over the hill, the sun hits you right in the eyes and you can't see if you got ice on your windows or even without it, it's hard to see. But anyhow, there was a deer crossing the road and I was standing there working in the field and I looked up and I saw this beautiful big buck with like, you know, a big rack on a, you know, a, be a prize kill for a hunter. And a car came flying down the hill, probably going 70 miles an hour and once you come over the hill, it's only about 50 yards to where our driveway is. And the deer was standing right in front of our driveway. And the car didn't even have a chance to see the deer before it hit the deer. 
and the deer flew up in the air and spun over, you know, a couple of times and flew about 30 or 40 feet and landed on the side of the road. And I immediately knew I needed to go take care of the deer. I was actually not worried about the person in the car. So I ran over and the deer was in shock and I was looking in the deer's eyes and the deer was looking at me like it was begging me for help, like help me. And interestingly enough, within two minutes, a, a police car was coming down the highway and this guy had pulled over his front end of his car was all smashed in and it was a lady policeman and she got out of the car and she said, what happened? I said, well, this guy didn't see the deer and he hit it and he didn't even see it. I watched the whole thing. I was working in the field right there. And I said, but you need to kill the deer. The deer's in, in a lot of pain. All its legs are broken. It's got internal bleeding. I said, you got to kill this thing right away. And, and so the woman policeman, you're not going to believe this. She was having such a hard time killing the deer. She stood right there and fired six shots at its head and missed every time. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, you're a cop and you can't shoot a deer laying on the ground <laughs> at your feet. So I had a hunting knife on me, a big knife I used to carry for working on the farm. And I just picked it up by the antlers and slit its throat to get it out of pain. And I, I just felt its spirit leaving its body like, yeah, like, you know, the, the energy of life dissipating like a, like a dove flying away, you know. So that's uh, other than animals dying and, you know, like pig, cows, I've seen lots of animals die, but I haven't had the kind of experiences you guys have had. That's my only experience. So I'm relying on your wisdom of that. And I'm not in a rush to be standing there when anybody that I know dies because of the obviousness of that. I've had quite a few experiences of actually being present with people when they were dying as well as, you know, talking to people after they've died. Um, but I've also had the experience that my sister was a person who had a near-death experience ah. um, a couple of years ago. She had an operation that went wrong. Her incisions came open and it was really bad. Like she was, had to be rushed to the hospital and her husband had called me and I was about 10 minutes behind them on the highway. And my father and my grandmother, who are both dead, came into my car with me and they told me that my sister was going to die. And that I remember because <laughs> I was like, what? And they were like, Sandy's going to die. And I was like, no, you can't have her. Like, you just can't have her. Mm. <laughs> and my dad said, well, don't worry, because you can talk to her, you know, so it'll be fine. And I was like, no, because that means I'm going to be doing more work because my spirits are really pushy. So the idea of my sister being dead meant that not only would I miss my sister, but then all of those bossy relatives of mine who are psychic would be telling me what to do. So I knew before I got to the hospital, I had already had an argument with my relatives over my sister dying. And my sister came out of surgery and she was still, you know, under the influence of the medication. What had happened was she had an allergic reaction to ketamine, which they gave her as a sedative and she died on the table. Um, but when she came out, she was doing this weird like hula dancing kind of thing with her arms and she was singing. She was literally singing, I have died and been reborn. Oh, great. And I was like, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> okay. Um, so, and what she said happened to her was that she was met by my grandmother 
who told her that she had fulfilled all of her lessons, you know, go back to that agenda, all of her karmic, you know, things that she had to do in this lifetime, she had fulfilled and that she could die if she wanted to. Cause my sister has a lot of health problems. She has rheumatoid arthritis and she was at, had been in a very difficult health crisis at that point. She's much better now. She still has rheumatoid arthritis, but believe it or not, her health is actually better than that too. But my grandmother told her that if she did die, that she would miss out on her son making her a grandmother. And my sister didn't die. And her son told her a couple months later that he was pregnant with what was her first grandchild. So um, her experience though was beautiful. And it was one in which she was met by her, you know, my grandmother in particular, which is kind of like, I say that most families have a family matriarch or patriarch who meets people when they die. So even if your wife is going to meet you and your kid's going to meet you, chances are if your mom is, that's her job, she's going to meet you too. Okay. So my grandmom is our family matriarch and that's who my sister was met by. But I really liked what you had to say, Angie, about people dying differently. I have often assumed that it had more to do with this age or the experience of the soul, because I do believe that some of us are, you know, we have more wisdom. We've been around more because I will have people who tell me that they died in a car accident and I'm talking to their family. I'm like, okay, well, they were out of their body before the ambulance even got there. And I know this because they're showing me themselves standing outside of the car wreck. They can see that the ground is wet and it's dark and I can see the blue lights coming up and they were outside of their body prior to death, especially if there's a lot of pain involved in the actual dying. A lot of spirits will, I say they jump ship and they stand beside their body. So they aren't free to move on into, you know, the spirit world at that time but they are not physically stuck in that body having to experience that excruciating pain. And I had an interesting experience myself. I've done a lot of training and one of the trainings I did involved sitting with our own death. We actually slept in our own grave. So we did a meditation first in which we looked at, you know, you got a year to live, a month to live, a week to live, a day to live. And it was journey work, progressive journey work. You know, how are you going to be in this moment? How do you picture yourself? And then we dug our own graves and were carried to our graves in the middle of the night and slept in them um, with like a blanket over us with dirt thrown on top of it, but like not enough. It was just like symbolic dirt on top of it. The person running it was not looking to really bury us, but it was still intense. One of the things is, is that for me, because I was a medium, that was intense and interesting, but my experience happened the next week because I was in a car with my son and he had his like iPhone plugged into my stereo and the stereo wasn't working right. So we stopped at the grocery store went in, we got out. And when you pull out of our grocery store, there's this really wonky traffic section. And all of a sudden his music came on. It was like blaring loud. And I thought I'd been hit by a car. I was out of my body, like instantaneously. I, the sat, the music came on. It was like, bam. And I was like up here in the car, you know, mostly out of my body. And I was like, oh my God, I just got hit by a car and my dad. And then I thought about my son and I was like, okay, is he okay? And then I pulled myself right back in. And what I realized was like, I'm the soul that's going to jump ship. 
Yeah. As soon as it's time for me to go, I'm I'm out of there. I'll be the one that's like you're, you know, like hello, I'm standing beside the body. I'm waiting for things to end here. Um, so I think that a lot of it does have to do with fear, has to do with, you know, how much spiritual wisdom we might have. But I think that the ones of us who have more spiritual wisdom do have the understanding. Paul, you've been having out of body experiences as well your whole life. You're probably also going to be like, I could be in this body that's in pain, or I can just stand here beside of it until they actually let me go. But I don't want to be there. So that's my perspective. I think that, like you guys have both said, I think that the actual experience of death is different for every person. I think that how we die and whether we stay attached to our body or not is often based on fear and you know, with age of our soul or wisdom of spirit, we have less fear of dying. So we are more likely to be out of our body. And the only other thing I'd like to add to that is that, you know, when you talk about having your, your friend who was asleep when she was murdered, my spirit guide, Adam, who I worked with for years, he had malaria. He got malaria in Costa Rica as a young man visiting and he had been delusional. So he had been in and out of consciousness where he was having, you know, hallucinations. And one of the things he told me when I first connected with him was that he didn't know when he died Mm. because of those delusions that he was in, kind of like the dream state thing. And that he didn't know until his grandfather came to get him. Right. When his grandfather came to get him, kind of like what happened to you with your friend, you went and told her like, hey, you're, you're not getting back in the body. Things are done here. You know, his grandfather who was already dead played that same role for him showing up and being like, Hey buddy. Yeah. You're not getting back in. It's time to go. So I do think that there can be moments, particularly when we have confusion at the end of our life where we might get stuck. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that kind of leads me to think about like when I do um, soul retrievals, it's like the person jumps out of their body thinking they're dying but they didn't die. Now there's part of them that's outside right. of the body. So those fragments are stuck in uh-huh. those times. And now we have to bring those back. So that's probably another whole exactly. podcast with Paul, but, <laughs> but that that's absolutely <laughs> happens. And so we have this choice. Do I leave my body or stay in it? And, and then those who don't want to die, they, their body dies and they're still stuck. there, waiting for their body to come back and it's not. And then that's where psychopomp work comes in, you know, and and if we yes. talk about religions, the Catholicism was infamous for doing psychopomp work in the earlier years. And it was, you know, you would go to the priest to make sure your loved one passed on and, uh, and they went to the right. light and they, sometimes they don't. And so I did a lot of that um, work in, um, in shaman school and I, I found it very valuable to see, oh my goodness, these are people that are stuck and they're, it's almost like Groundhog's Day where they're living the same moment over and over again. And I've seen people go through suicides where they hang themselves, they go through the death process and then they come back walking in the room and put the rope up again, hang themselves. I'm like, what are they doing? And it's really scary stuff when you see that and you're like, and if you have a conversation with them, sometimes like this, this is my fate. This is what I, I need. And they, they don't want to leave and they might stay there for eternity that way. And others I'm like, put down the rope, you can go move on. Sometimes they're ready to move on. But it's interesting work when you get in that realm to see who's still stuck there, who doesn't realize they're not in a body. Well, and the spirit world is really complex too, because like 
not everything that we see that is spirit is actually like, I think about this, like with civil war sites and they talk about like all the orbs and, you know, you can think like, Oh my God, all those souls are trapped there. But really what it is, is it's more like an impression left on the land, like a scar Mm -hmm. or like double exposure on film. And I do think because I actually have my mom's family is all from Maryland, West Virginia. So I've spent a lot of time there and actually not always with my family. In my adult life, I've gone down more for staying near Civil War sites. And I feel very drawn to working on those particular wounds. And what I've found is I've stayed in this little house that's um, in a town that's called Scrabble in West Virginia. And I've stayed in this schoolhouse a couple times. It's super fucking haunted. <laughs> it really is. It's a place. It's two miles, not two, yeah, two miles from the Potomac. And it is on this little creek, and it was an area where Civil War soldiers were were set up right before they crossed for a big battle. So, long story short, I have the first time I stayed there, I interacted with a spirit who I think sometimes when you're a medium, it's you're the spirit, you know, like instead of me being in my time period and this spirit coming to visit me, I feel very much like to the spirit, he was still camped out with his buddies, not knowing what was going to happen the next day. And that I had actually in that spot been in a place that was in a wobble in time, if you will. Do you know what I mean? So his experience with me, and I've had this happen to me multiple times. I had an experience, you're a medicine person. So I had an experience doing medicine in which I connected with an ancestor of mine. I was looking for, because my abilities come through my father's side of the family. And I was like, well, there's got to be someone in my mother's side. And I connected to this soul, this guy in the middle of the woods. And I think, well, it was Tennessee, but it was definitely the South. And he knew he heard me, like he thought I would like that he was like hallucinating or something. Mm -hmm. And I was communicating with him trying to explain to him what I was actually doing that I had taken, you know, psilocybin was sitting on top of a rock. And having this conversation with him and he told me all about what he did. He was, I, he was wearing a a union. I mean, I'm sorry. He was wearing a Confederate jacket. And so I was talking to him about that. And he said that he wasn't a soldier, that he was a tracker and he was a tracker. And that had to do with his psychic ability and that he had the jacket because it was the best jacket he had. And we talked about it kind of like in terms of like, if you live in Boston, you're about, I guess you're a Boston Red Sox fan. So I guess because I live here, I would be considered this, but he didn't feel any of those things. And I was talking about what was happening in our time, explaining even that like, look, you lose. <laughs> the South loses. Plain and simple, okay? Um, and he gave me his name. His name was Billy Hitt. And I had a cousin who had done extensive um, ancestral work on my mother's family. So I wrote to her and I said, look, I know this is going to sound kind of strange. I said, but do we have a, do we have relatives with the last name hit that lived in, you know, Tennessee? And she's like, yes, we did. And she's telling me they weren't like direct descendants. They were like over one, you know, whatever. So my assistant is a huge genealogy buff. So I gave her that information within moments. She was able to come back. She found a Billy hit in Tennessee and he had joined the union army. Okay. So it was my niece when my sister was telling her the story who said, mom, 
Do you think that he joined the Union Army after having the experience with Aunt Sally? Because I had he wasn't on any in any army at the time, but he ended up joining with the North. So here's my weird, um, you know, like people die and they do strange things. And spirits aren't always the one who is the spirit. You might be the spirit in the moment. You know, like yeah. the world is very weird. interesting. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to tell you about Wild Pastures' amazing meat delivery service. They have beef, chicken, pork, and wild-caught fish. My family and I have been enjoying their meat for quite some time now, and I just couldn't wait to tell you about it any longer. We had an amazing barbecue this weekend, and I'm still high off the meat. And they use a whole network of regenerative farms, which means that you're getting a different ecosystem from each farm, which means a different nutritional profile, which means nutritional diversity, which means health and vitality, which is exactly what we need right now in the world for ourselves and our families so we can all make a difference in the world. And Matt Smith's going to tell us more about this amazing company, Wild Pastures, about their offering and how you can get it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much, Paul. And I'm excited to tell your listeners what they can get today and how we can help them out. So, you know, as you know, pastured meats are crazy expensive. And so our goal with Wild Pastures is to tap into this network of regenerative farmers and to finally create the solution of where we can get the highest quality meats delivered straight to your door for the most affordable prices around. And so we're on average seeing that we are 40% cheaper than any other delivery option out there. And that our customers have reportedly saved, on average, $1,000 on their grocery bill from meat alone. And so Wild Pastures is a regenerative meat delivery service that is solving this problem. And you can get 100% grass-fed and finished, as well as pasture-raised pork and poultry and wild-caught seafood from Alaska delivered straight to your door. So it's far more convenient. It's far more environmentally friendly because we're using regenerative farms entirely. We don't use feedlots ever. So the, the nutrition profiles are way better. You can definitely taste the difference. I know we were talking about this on our uh, just before we hopped on. You having a Father's Day barbecue and, and how incredible the pasture-raised chicken and beef short ribs were. And you can really taste the difference, right? I'm and still so, high. <laughs> and so our goal is to remove the roadblock from people's minds that if they want to eat healthy, it's too expensive. And so that's where Wild Pastures comes in is we are delivering with our own fleets of trucks whenever possible. We haven't raised our meat prices in over three years at this point. And we're really just creating convenience for the consumer and kind of being the high tide that rises all ships. If we can opt more people into a system like this, the cost stays down for everybody. And so there is a myriad of benefits that go into that. And so today, if your listeners want to try Wild Pastures and taste the difference and experience what it's like, go to wildpastures.com forward slash Paul Check or click the link in the show notes and save 20% off for life, plus get free shipping for life plus get $15 off your first box. That's a mind-blowing deal. I can't even <laughs> imagine. I mean, I've never heard of an offer like that. And, you know, most people will hear an offer like that and think, this can't be that good. But I'm telling you, it's not, it's not only that good, it's really good. Or I would not be sharing this on my podcast. I think everybody needs to get a hold of Wild Pastures for their family, for their vitality, for their longevity, and for the future of this planet. So thank you guys very much. So Matt, Matt, just repeat the website again. Sure. Just go to wildpastures.com forward slash Paul check or visit the link in the show notes and get 20% off for life plus free shipping for life plus $15 off your first box so you can try it. You'll be glad you did.
Sally, I could talk to you for hours. You, I hear you. I'm like, I want to tell you my story about this. I want to tell you. There's so much. It's I like, know, oh, we connect some other time because I'm we always have like, to. I love other weird people. Oh, yeah. I got <laughs> stories that yeah, there's so much fun and I'm, I'm, I could, I'd love to share more and more. I just don't want to go over Paul's time constraints. No, no, we're, we're, we're <laughs> I know, good. I know. Um, I'm just going to tell you guys and share with the audience one story uh, real quick. I've had many cases like this, but this is a very unique one. And I think it might be important for the listeners to hear. I was in Toronto and one of my higher level students who'd been studying with me for several years brought his girlfriend with him, who then later became his wife. But he's a super fit guy. You know, she's with him, she she's actually. I think she, she. I don't know if she was a trainer or what, but she 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 exercised a lot. But she had no muscle tone in her butt or her legs at all. I mean, she looked like her legs were just going to drip right off of her. Like you ever seen people whose muscle tone is so mushy, it's almost like it's just going to fall off. It's like what is up with that? And her upper body was as fit as. I mean, she looked like a CrossFit competitor from the waistline up and like this body that had no soul in it from the waist down. And I looked at this. I don't normally walk around with my clairvoyance on because I don't want to see everybody's stuff all the time. But I intuitively sensed I've got to look at her clairvoyantly because there's something going on here. There's no way she could have an upper body that fit in a lower body. that looks like it's never been to a gym ever or even exercised. And I said to him, I said, are you training her legs when you write programs for her? I mean, I, she was out in the, in the lake. She wasn't standing there. And he said, Paul, it's the strangest thing. I have never been able to get any muscle tone in her lower body. He said, do, do you have any ideas why that is? I said, well, I'm, I'll look at her spiritually and see what I see. And so I turned on my third eye and looked at her and her soul was literally like 15 feet above her body. Mm -hmm. And there was a, you know, the silver cord going down into her crown, but I could see it was like someone took a tube of toothpaste and squeezed the bottom of it so hard, half the toothpaste was up above her body. And I went, wow. I said, I bet you she's had some kind of a really serious trauma and her soul's never gotten back in her body. Yeah. So when she came mm -hmm. out of the water, I can't remember what her name is. This is probably 2010 or something. I said to her, I said, have you ever had a serious trauma, like a real bad car accident or anything? She points to her eye and she's got this scar under her eye, like literally like someone took a knife and cut the under of her eye. And she said, see that? My mother and I were driving down the highway one day and someone tried to pass a car when we were coming right at them and there was no room and we hit them head on. We were going probably 60 miles an hour. And so were there. She said, I shot straight out the window of the car. It went right through the windshield and flew mm. about 50 feet down the highway. And my mother was killed instantly. And the impact knocked my eyeball mm. right out of the socket. She said they had to put my eye back in surgically. And she said, it took me years to recover. And I said to her, did you used to have tone in your legs before then? She goes, and it kind of like a light bulb went off in her head. She goes, oh my God, I did. I used to have a beautiful body. And, and now she says, and then she gets her boyfriend who doesn't, she doesn't know I've just been talking. And she goes, tell him, tell him, you can never get my legs to tone up. 
So I said, would you like me to help you? So I actually used my shamanic abilities and brought her soul back down into her body. And then it was maybe three days later, but I actually took her out into the lake because water, as you probably know, is very powerful for pulling the soul back in. So I took her into the lake and I had her doing a series of breathing exercises and I had her draw her intention and put her mind down in her legs and exercise her toes and her feet. I said, I need you to come right into your body and put your concentration down and consciously bring yourself down into your body. And so I worked with her. It took me about a half an hour and it was like pulling silk back inside. And by the time she walked out of that lake, her butt was turned on and her legs were turned on. But then I got a call from them about three days later and like, and it was her boyfriend calling me. He's like, Paul, you are not going to believe this. So they started sending me pictures. It was like her legs looked like an athlete's legs again. They matched her upper body and it only took three days for that process to metamorphosize. Wow. We use a lot of glamour, even when we don't think about it. And that glamour is, you know, like in witchcraft, you talk about glamour magic and stuff, but people don't realize how much glamour they use in their own. Like, if you think that you're ugly, or you think, you know, like, that, are you going to be projecting more things about yourself that would make that stand out? So like, you know, she could be very much have hated that part of herself and felt disconnected from it. And therefore, you know, part of it was that, yeah, the muscle tone was there, but it also was hidden by this illusion, if you will, because we are far more like powerful than we give ourselves credit for. Even people who don't think that they're using their abilities, they're using it all the time. They're just most of the time using it to harm themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true. Well, I've seen, I've worked with, you know, so many people uh, that have had bad traumas. It's a long, long string of them. And I've done a lot of work with soul loss uh, for very many reasons. But I have seen, as Angie mentioned earlier, and I've also seen this very common with people that I've worked with, because I've worked with a lot of people that have been possessed, um, that whenever, for any reason, they don't inhabit their body, then they are susceptible to entities that come in through that part of their body. Yeah. And um, so, you know, whenever I see people in trauma, I, I look at them clairvoyantly. And if I see that they're not in their body, I immediately want to work with them to get them back in their body because you cannot rehabilitate an injured body that doesn't no. have a soul in it. You, you, you know, I people can have rotator cuff problems for 25 years and they have five surgeries on it and it won't work. I'm really enjoying this dialogue and, and I'm grateful for both of you. And I'm grateful that we can share so much information that most people never have access to, particularly from people like you guys that have a lot of authentic experience and can tangibly demonstrate it. I mean, there's no question when you're communicating with someone in the afterlife and they tell you stuff that you couldn't possibly know and it's right on, you know, so the, the, because there's so many people that think all this stuff's fluffy, but like I've had so many of these experiences. I'm like, I'm sorry you feel that way, but you know, one day, you, you know, maybe you'll spiritually grow up and see what's really going on. My next question is fairly simple. Can you describe the similarities or differences between what happens when a human being dies and when an animal dies? You know, I think it's very similar. I've been 
present with animals dying of natural causes and also through euthanasia and people in the same way. Um, Because I've also taken part in the Death with Dignity Act in the state of Vermont when a friend of mine used assisted suicide. So I would say they're very similar in the dying process. In my experiences, animals don't have as much baggage, so they cross into spirit a little easier than humans do because very few of them have as much stuff that they've done that they have to examine. And also, I think that spirits can of animals can reincarnate faster because I know people who've had the same animal more than once. And you know, it's funny, you took the words right out of my mouth. I have... Um... I actually took notes and it's, I'm like, oh my gosh, Sally Crow's reading my notes. But I, I was, you know, <laughs> sharing that, yeah, animals don't have the you know, polarity that we do. Like we don't have that charge of, and like I said, I had the, uh, I've seen it too, that they can carry on very quickly to another life. And oftentimes a human, we have so much baggage. We have to be in the afterlife for a while to resolve some of that before we take on a new body. We have to learn and grow and, and they don't have that. And so they're easily to, they can take on another life. They can come back very quickly. And so, yes, the death process may be similar to a human body, but the soul process is very, very different. In fact, you know, they can go right into something else. Like you said, be the next pet for the family and come right back. My experience is, is different than your guys's. In On the farm, I was young, so I would just feel the life gone. I would know that the, that the life had gone. But what I have had quite a lot of is because patients come to me with all sorts of problems, like, you know, everything you can imagine. And a lot of them, I've found that their, their health conditions, heart conditions, chronic neck pain, whatever is grief that they're holding over the loss of an animal that they really loved. And interestingly, I found people's grieving process can be more intense with an animal they love yeah. than a human being. And so what I've found is that the animals often show up to communicate to me just like humans do but that the animals often stay around for a long time. Like I've, I've had people that have their animal died a year ago, but the animal's still following them around just like it used to. It doesn't want to leave them mm-hmm. and they don't realize that. I think that's true too. I've experienced some of that. I think it comes with like how much the person needs the animal. Like if that person really is really, like you were saying, carrying grief and really mourning that animal's passing, then the animal might stay on longer in order to help in whatever way it can. Yes. I've also found animals are, um, they seem to me from my experiences to be more connected to place than human beings. And I'll give you a quick example. I are, we used to have a UK distributor, um, who had a three-level home she bought in London, uh, outside of London, where and that was our UK headquarters. So I used to stay with her. So did Penny whenever we were over there doing our UK lecture tours because we work all over the world. And I was upstairs on the third level of her house one day, and a, a cat appeared before me and was looking at me and was looking at me like, what are you doing in my house? And so I said to the cat, oh, I'm visiting. Who are you? And the cat said, this is my house. Like, it it was like, I'm in, I'm in its, in its space. Get out of here, you know? And so about five minutes after this happened, the lady that, that was our distributor, Alex came upstairs and I said, do do you know you have a cat 
ghost in the house. And she just turned white. She said, are you kidding me? I said, no, you have a house. Cat, this cat says this is his house. And it's it, it lived here its whole life and it died here. And she says, oh my God. I said, why is that so shocking to you? She goes, Paul, my dog goes crazy chasing yeah. something around the house all the time <laughs> and literally like knocking furniture over. And, and now I know what it is. <laughs> and the other thing I've noticed is animals can see deceased animals and deceased oh, yeah. human beings far better than human beings can. Mm -hmm. Animals can see. I live in the woods and have a lot of elementals. And every year I get brownies in my house. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. I get brownies usually a couple times a year in the spring and in the fall. And my cats will go nuts. And it's so much where my husband doesn't see these things. He does uh, believe that I do, but he'll even say something sometimes about like, you're, you know, they're driving the cats nuts. You're like, I'm like, they just come in for a short amount of time. So I think animals just are really sensitive to that dimension. And what's a brownie? A brownie is a small earth elemental. They're about this tall. They're about a foot tall. And most of the time, if you see them, they're going to be like a sepia in color. And they move really fast. They like to, they do go into people's houses, though. And they're a little mischievous. Okay. But not bad. Now that you say that, I've, I've seen them before. They move almost like lightning, don't they? Yeah, they can move really fast across the space. Yes. So my second book, Elemental Witchcraft, was all about working with elemental beings. Yeah, I often see them in my peripheral vision. Sometimes when I'm rocking, stacking rocks in my rock garden, they'll hang out. And when I turn to look at them, all I see is like, almost like a tail of a comet. And then I don't see anything that's gone. Elemental beings can, can move into two dimensions, is what I describe it as they can become two dimensional really easily, kind of like by sliding to the side. And then all of a sudden we can't see them. They that's become, cool. like you said, they're gone. You know, when it comes to animals, I find that they come through the dream world for me more after they've passed on. So instead of coming to me in the physical and I see them as an apparition, the dreams, like I remember I had this little golden finch that we rescued. It was being attacked by a crow and it, its wing got injured. And we thought, oh, we'll just keep this little finch until its wing gets better. And it never did. So we had this pet little finch and we had it for years. And then one day we had forgot to take the birdcage. We used to put it outside in the patio and bring it in at the night. And something must have attacked. It was on top of the chimney, inside of the chimney wall. And it, the cat knocked the birdcage over and ate, apparently ate the bird. And it had a couple of years extra of life and it would have died a, a kind of the same death, but we had two more years to live. And I was really sad and really upset. And it was a couple of months later, um, I was had this dream and I was like, I saw myself walking out in my backyard and I just put my hand up into the sky and I saw this beautiful cloudy sky and this bird flew down to my hand. And she sang a little song and then she flew away. And then I woke up from the dream and it was so beautiful because she was acknowledging her life and acknowledging me and showing me she could fly again, you know, and it was such a beautiful thing. And so I've had some of those dreams where a, a love pet passed on and then comes back to me to let me know, hey, I'm okay. Everything's all right now. That's uh, great. It leads right into my next question. If there's a message you'd like to offer listening, listeners regarding how to resolve their grief from the loss of a loved one or pet, what would you offer uh, to support people? Particularly people that believe death is terminal, like it's screened to black, you know, that's it. Mm. Well, I think that if you believe that nothing exists after, then 
the healing that you're looking for might be different. You may be just needing to learn how to keep that person alive through memories, you know, like storytelling. But the same thing works even if you do believe in an afterlife because our ancestors, our beloved dead, our, you know, friends, family, friends, and loved, um, loved ones and guides, they love to be talked about. And so when we talk about something, there's a saying, what is remembered lives. Okay. And regardless yes. of whether we see spirits or not, when we talk about our loved ones and spirit, we are remembering them and it helps us in our healing process because I've met people who have mausoleums in their house where they have literally shut off the bedroom of a child or, you know, uh, usually it's a child when it's a mausoleum, but it's like, nobody goes in, nobody goes out, everything stays the same. And it's almost like everybody's holding their breath and nobody heals in that place. You know, we have to open the door. We have to sit with those emotions We have to remember them for all the good and all the difficult and everything. And that will help us in our healing. But I also think that an ancestor altar goes a long way, which is simply just a shelf that you can set aside with sacred items and items that make you think of your loved one in spirit. That gives us a place to give honor to them. It gives us a place to start to form a living relationship with them because we can go to that space in our home to talk to them because, you know, that's what gravestones were originally for. But most of us live, don't live next door to the family graveyard anymore. You know, it used to be in a time when we didn't travel very far that if you're dead or buried in the graveyard, going to the graveyard wasn't a big deal. You could walk there every day and go visit. So we need something that's a little bit more personal. And I think that when we create altars and shrines in our home for our beloved dead, it gives us a reminder of them. It allows us to work with them in our everyday life a little bit more easily. And whether we believe that they're gone forever or that, you know, we we don't believe in an afterlife and we just think that we're doing this as a way of remembering them, it will still help us to find peace. Yeah, you know, my advice would be to, if you want to start doing this kind of work, to meditate, learn to meditate, how to hold still, and so that you can start using those extrasensory perceptions and to hone in on those um, skills. Because I think people think, oh, I can't do that, but they've never really tried. And so trust in your ability and trust in your ability to speak to your loved ones because your loved ones still love you and they do want to connect. And if you're willing to listen and and practice, they're willing to to connect to you. So I think that's important. I think, you know, listening to podcasts like this, um, reading like Sally Crow's book and other books on mediumship and understanding it and being more comfortable with that. I think that's going to be a a lot of help for most. I think that's why they seek out a medium in the first place. A lot of people, because they are worried or don't know what's happening. And that gives them a lot of comfort. I know the work I do when I, when I share with them information, there's no other way I'd know. It's like, these people come for me from Adam and I don't know anything about their family. And then I start telling them about things that happen. They go there. That's confirmation. They're like, well, how would Angie know that? Like, I, I remember one, I was like, okay, um, he used to spread peanut butter on his body was a kid and thought that was funny. And they're like, huh? And so they asked the mom and she's like, oh my gosh, that was his favorite thing to do. You know? And it's like, okay, so you know, those sorts of things, you know? Um, so uh, that's no way I could know that. And that's confirmation. Like, wait a minute. 
there has to be some afterlife because how would I know these things? How would I see that? And how would he be telling me that? And so I, I think that's helpful to those who are suffering through this time is to connect and be open to hearing, you know, messages. I would also say along those lines that around mediumship, I just want to clear this up. Like I've really enjoyed meeting you, Angie, because I can listen to you and I can hear authenticity. But one of the things I think is really important for people to realize is that there are good mediums and bad mediums, just like there's good plumbers and bad plumbers. And if you go to somebody, do not give them a ton of information when you're starting. I have seen people do that and I will always stop them. I'm like, stop was like, you're going to have so much more feeling of, you know, truth from this. If it's the medium giving you the information, then you giving a bunch of information, you know, unfortunately, there are people who will take advantage of our pain. So we have to, you don't have to go in like a closed off wall, but you have to go in without blabbering your whole story yourself. Let the medium tell you. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. It's like any of my work, I also do biogeometry, which is energy medicine. And I work on people and tell them where their um, illnesses are in their body. And I say, don't tell me anything about you. Because if you tell me I have a heart Mm -hmm. condition, I'm like, oh, look, you have a heart condition. Well, you already told me. So I said, let me do the whole process. And when I'm done, if I miss anything, then we'll go back and check. But you know, I've done my work for so long, I rarely miss anything. And then they're like, wow, but that creates authenticity, like you said. But if someone came in and told the whole life story, then yeah, sure, anybody could be like, oh, yes, he loved his pie because you, know, you just told him that, you know? Right. So absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because, you know, as many as you know, there's good doctors, but good plumbers, there's bad ones as well. And so um, recognizing, you know, intuition and trusting your gut. And, and also if a medium's trying to ask you for more money and you have to do this to save their soul or something, right. I've seen some really ugly things where you're like, Oh my gosh, they're stuck. And I need to give them thousands of dollars to take, you know, that's taking advantage of people. So that should not be exactly. happening. Yeah. Sad that that happens, but it does. My, a couple things I would share that I've shared with people for the left brainers, the atheistic types, I simply use their own belief system to help them understand the death process and the soul and the afterlife. And I simply say this, are you familiar with the second law of thermodynamics? And some of them are, some of them are. I say the second law of thermodynamics says energy produced cannot be destroyed, only transformed. The psyche is energy. It's Jung says it's, and Wolfgang Pauli said it's pure energy at one end and matter at the other. And the seven chakras string the two together. So pure God consciousness condensates into matter or body at the other end and the chakras are the vibrational step down process of that condensation so what i say is look energy produced can not be destroyed only transformed the soul is an energy form or it wouldn't animate your body so the person that has died has only transformed energetically from a physical state to a less physical state so i say if you just look at the second law of thermodynamics and apply it honestly, then you'll come face to face with the reality that no one dies. They like terminally, they just transform. The other thing I suggest is people just, because everybody dreamed, they say, look, if you want to communicate with somebody you love or that you're grieving over, just hold the intention and do a little prayer before you go to bed or write it down. 
or just say, dear Dreamweaver, please take me to my mother tonight and be open to receiving the dream and be patient. It might take a week. It might take a month. It might be that night. But as long as your intention is there, they will come to you in their dreams. And I say, pay, hold the intention and pay, pay most attention right as you're falling asleep and right as you're waking up, because those are when you have one foot in each realm. Oftentimes you won't remember the dream because you're too unconscious. And in your awake, your belief system's in the way. But right when you're falling asleep or right when you're waking up, you've got one foot in each world. And that's where access is very good. And Steiner actually gives a very good meditation practice that I'll share for anybody that wants to learn a meditation that works for accessing the other realm. He says, lay on a couch or a bed, get very comfortable, take a piece of silverware like a fork or a knife and put a plate under your hand. So you're laying on the couch with your arm hanging off and you're holding on this to the fork or the knife in your fingers. And you try to relax into a deep state of meditation. And if you fall asleep, you'll drop the fork or the knife. It'll hit the plate and wake you up. So what you do is you use that technique to stay in the hypnagogic state, in the in-between world state. And there you have access to the entire spiritual realm if you can learn to control your mind. So that's a, a, a real simple meditation that I've practiced with and have taught many people. So those of you that want to learn to access the spirit realm can begin with that very simple practice. And you'll be surprised at how much is all of a sudden available to you that you used to think you were just dreaming about. But now you're awake enough to know that you're not dreaming. You're actually looking into what we would consider to be a spirit world or another dimension. So those are just some quick tips. I'd like to add one thing that I add, just take the words, maybe kind of, and think so out of your vocabulary when you're having spiritual experiences and you will have far more spiritual experiences because people often have an experience yes. and they'll say, I think I saw something out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, okay, you either did or you didn't. Let's say this without the doubt. Right. All right? What makes right. you suddenly be like, I was just sitting here and my brain just randomly thought, it's like, no, you actually, and what happens is when you take the doubt words out and you say it again in the, you know, as an affirmation, I just saw something out of the corner of my eye. I'll ask people again, I'm like, how that feel? And they'll be like, I saw something out of the corner of my eye. Because when you say it in the affirmation, you know, as an affirmation, you know, it's true. You feel it. You're like, I did see my grandmother. I did see my brother, whatever it is. One of the most amazing Bioptimizers products I've ever used is Biome Breakthrough, which used to be called Leaky Gut Guardian. I can honestly say I use it every single day. I have a morning routine. I put a scoop in with two fresh squeezed limes. I put a little bit of other ingredients that I like in there. And I'll tell you what, if any of you have read my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and you know how to read your poops, well, Biome Breakthrough makes for some really nice poopy policemen. I've got Wade here to tell us what's so unique about it, but I want to tell you right up front, I love this stuff. I don't go anywhere without it, and I keep a lot of it on hand so I don't run out. So, Wade, what is it that's making that product so effective? Well, first and foremost, we have to look at what's happening in the population at large. And Harvard just released an extensive study demonstrating that virtually everyone has some degree of leaky gut. And that means the gut permeability of our intestines is leaking toxins into the system which are causing immunoresponses. Now, some people that's 
sneezing or allergies, but then it can move on to more inflammatory conditions. And anybody that's checked out your work understands this. The question is, how do you actually seal the gut so that you can stop this from happening? And we have a partnership with Birch International University in Croatia, where we have a team of PhD scientists working on this. And we've been able to combine a unique product called IGY Max, which is a patented egg-based product that enhances your gut health and reverses the damage that can be done by all these toxins that are leading to leaky gut. But when we combined it with some specific probiotics, they work synergistically together to be able to repair leaky gut in literally hours as opposed to going through an extensive protocol. Now, we can't stop ourselves from experiencing all the toxins in our world or food, air, water, you name it. It's coming from everywhere nowadays. So what we have to look at is, is well, how do we manage the damage, if you will, that we are taking, even if we're following, you know, the highest levels of, of food hygiene and, you know, conscientiousness. And so What's happened is Biome Breakthrough has been able to be proven in the lab and in folks. Research papers will be coming out very soon to demonstrate this. And that's why we've called it Biome Breakthrough. We're able to actually repair and stop the leaky gut from happening with the combination of IGY Max. It's a unique set of probiotics. And we're happy to deliver it to people. We're very excited. We can try it. It's a money back guarantee. If you don't feel better, if your poops aren't better, if you don't say, wow, my, my inflammatory conditions in my gut are going down. Uh, you get your money back. So it's really easy to get. You go to biomebreakthrough.com slash living40. You'll get put in Paul 10. You get a 10% discount on this and any other products that we supply at Bioptimizers. I can't recommend it enough. I love this stuff. And it actually tastes good too, which is unique. So thank you very much once again for making such an amazing product. I'm really excited to be able to offer it to everybody. Enjoy Biome Breakthrough. I think it's important for the whole family. My next question is regarding possession. I've done a lot of work, as I mentioned earlier, with people that have been possessed by entities. There, there's common denominators amongst those who are possessed, such as we mentioned, not inhabiting the body and being fully present in their own life and participating in their own life. I found that people using plant medicines unskillfully or inappropriately uh, are very susceptible to entity possession, especially when they're in groups where there's other people carrying them and if they're not present in themselves, then they, I, I've seen many times entities love to trade up, just like we want a better house or a better yeah. car, especially if they have an agenda, they want to get a body that's more appropriate for what they're trying to get done. Can each of you share how it is that you're able to work with souls on the other side or even spirits without becoming possessed by them, you yourselves? Uh, so I think it's really important um, to really love yourself. Like I said before, when you have soul loss, it's because there's parts of you don't love. And that's a place or like a pocket inside your body that some, something can get into. So I find that when you really are, are, have a high self-esteem or really love yourself, that's there's less room. There's light inside you. And so there's no room for darkness. I also believe that you can wear jewelry that helps with, you know, helping remove that energy. Like um, when I'm going to do some deep work and I'm worried that there might be some dark energy, I have it here somewhere on my, of course, it's somewhere on my desk, but it's a biogeometry. Oh yeah, here it is. I put this on my necklace and those who are seeing online with the video, you can see this special um, pendant, uh, very powerful to protect from entities. So if I know I'm going to be doing some work on someone that I think has an entity, I'm going to protect myself. 
Um, so, the, you know, even things like black tourmaline is a really good stone to wear to remove negative energy. Um, if you feel like you have energy come into your body after doing such work, um, I, um, I would go in an Epsom salt bath and soak and remove the energy. I, I, oftentimes I'll dust myself off energetically to remove that feeling so that it's removed from my field. Um, so those are some of the things I do to help protect me uh, to clear it. Um, clearing your space is really important. Saging is really important. Uh, so if you feel like something got into your field, grab some sage, sage yourself, sage your house. Um, sage is very powerful. Um, negative energy does not like it. So there's other, um, uh, besides sage, I know there's an, a few other herbs that you can use, uh, incenses and things that are um, repel repulsion for that. So I, I think those are my main points I wanted to wear is wearing the protective jewelry and with, and with intention. Like, I think it's very cautious that if someone does want to do this kind of work, that they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. When we doing it for power, or prestige or ego, uh, that attracts negative energy. I had this really powerful teacher, which I won't mention her name. And I met her once earlier in my um, years and I just loved her and her energy was amazing. But she was on this pathway of becoming super powerful and powerful. And then six months later, I saw her and the energy was chaotic in her. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is this, this woman's energy. It was so powerful. Like I'm very sensitive energy. It was like I drank a, a pot of coffee. It was bzzz, and I'm like, this is not healthy energy at all. And years later, I, I, you know, heard about her work and she admitted later that she was working with energies and wanting to have this power. And she saw a, a, a psychic and was like, you have all these souls attached to you. Like she was drawing in this forces to become this powerful thing. And I, I so I caution people doing that for the wrong reason. She was out to become the best or the, you know, have this ego instead of just doing it for helping. When I do this work, it's all about helping and serving and, and, and not, it's not about like, I'm in the process of writing a book and I'm hoping Salico, you're inspiring me to finish my book. I've been writing it for over 10 years and my book was always never about me. It was about what is possible. And it's a book of inspiration so that other people can do this work. And so I think that's a, a powerful you know, way of writing a book because it's not like, hey, look how cool I can do this or this happened to me. It's like I was open enough and brave enough to try and these really cool things happened to me. And I think that's an important message is to say, be humble and be, uh, you know, accepting and, and, and do it for the right reasons. And for me, it's always been about healing and wanting to help someone else. Yes. As I said, I grew up psychic. So in my early years, I did have some negative experiences with spirits that I'm going to say I was protected because I had a bit of an ego and that I'm not encouraging people to have that, but I grew up where my dad was a Marine and my grandmother, like my dad used to say things to us, like, um, my maiden name is Brown. And he would say things like, just remember you're Brown. That means you're better than everybody else. So I don't actually believe that I'm better than everybody else. I want to clear that up. But when I was a kid, I remember having, I was like 13, I was about 14 years old. And I had an experience with one of my friends had a Ouija board at her house and surprise, surprise, all the spirits wanted to talk to me. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that happened was we did work at, there was a negative entity that was attracted to her because she was very insecure. And it started telling her things like that it could manifest itself. It could become her boyfriend. It could become all this. And it that spirit did not like me at all. Because I think that deep down, Angie, I've always loved myself. 
ego aside about what my dad, how my dad might have put it. I've always just been a person who I love myself. I truly do. And not in some weird egotistical way, but I appreciate this person who I am. And when he started telling us that he could make himself real, I was like, oh, really? Well, you better prove it. And he would say like, I can do this. And I was just like going right back at him because I had been taught that no spirit had power, any more power over me than I did myself because I was the one who owned the body. And so as I got older, you know, I mean, granted that actually did save us. That's why I, I wrote about that in my first book as well, because that was like what saved inexperienced teenage girls playing with spirits they shouldn't have been playing with. And my, none of my friends had the same level of confidence as a teenager that I did. So I do think that that was part of, you know, what helped that I think is a very important thing. But I also going back to you, there's no shortcuts in developing psychic ability. If you take a shortcut, you're probably going to end up endangering yourself at some point. And what I mean by that is you got to do the work. You got to know yourself. There's a saying, heal or heal thyself. If you don't, you're endangered. I said earlier that I worked with five spirits that were helping me to open up. They literally, it was a plan that I created. They told me that they're like, you created this plan. And one of the things they really enforced in me was that my role was as important as any of their roles, because I was the one who could communicate without me they didn't have this ability to do this. And I mean, everybody can do it to a certain extent, but those of us who have developed ability, we have to also see our own worth in that evaluation. Like, what am I capable of? What do I stand for? What do I believe in? And we have to hold that to the table. It's like, I think that's the part of being raised by a Marine is that my dad used to have a, a saying, like, we don't go down like punks. And what that means is that, you know, I will not give you my power regardless. The part that spirit taught me, which is that we have to know ourselves, is the way we give our power away is through fear. And fear can also come from the things that we hide. So when we don't know ourselves, that's a really dangerous thing to be developing psychic ability or magical practices and not taking the time to know yourself. Because other beings can then use that against you, just like my teenage friend who was insecure. They tried to use her insecurity against her. Negative entities are going to be manipulative and they're going to try to use our own fears and insecurities against us. And if we develop a true sense of self, which means knowing what your shadow is, I mean, you guys, I can't imagine I'm sitting here with you two and saying that neither one of you have done shadow work. I'm sure you've done so much shadow work, you know yourselves inside out, right? You have to, I have to, to navigate these realms, yes. Yes, you have to, because if you don't do that work, that's really like, how do you keep yourself safe? If you really want to do this work, then you have to really do the work. You have to heal yourself. You have to know where your traumas are. You have to know where you can easily be triggered. You have to, you know, because you're going to sit with people in really intense situations. And I agree with you, Paul, that entities want to move up, you know, people who are just barely getting by in the world might attract entities, but they don't have much to offer. And I'm not saying that as an arrogant thing either. I'm just saying they don't have codes to big bank accounts or government agencies or anything that can actually make a huge change. So they're going to look for the next step up. So 
we have to be smart and we have to really know ourselves. Yes. To thine own self be true or thou canst be true to any other man or spirit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm going to share a quick story because it's quite profound. You, you guys have said enough that I won't add much to it. In my earlier years, probably my first 10 years with plant medicines, I, you know, I'm the kind of guy that tests everything and I take it to the threshold. When I race cars, it was as fast as I could go without dying. When I was a paratrooper, it was like closer to death, the better. And then I'm really, now I'm living, baby. You know, I like to push myself and I like to test things. So what I did earlier in my years, and I've got all this documented, Angie Seaton, I've got literally like 50, 60 books, if not more. I would do plant, take a plant medicine, be it mushrooms, mescaline, LSD, whatever, although that's not a plant medicine, but I would go progressively up in dose and I would go and map out what, what were the dimensions that I would go to, what kind of experiences that I have there, because I had all these people coming to me that had been injured using plant medicines, usually in ceremonies or just doing stupid things like doing heavy, heavy doses, three, four days in a row or five days in a row. And then their life would fall apart. They'd be full of entities. Some I've, I've seen people with as many as 20 entities in them. And so at this particular time, I was reaching a very high threshold and I was testing at that time LSD and I was up to nine hits, nine doses. So about 900 micrograms, which is a very high dose. And I was right at the edge where my psyche was starting to break down. I mean, I literally, I'm laying on the floor and the ceiling of the house is opening up and I can see the sun coming through with no ceiling in the way. Like the vibration was so high, you could feel everything was all a living illusion, really. You could see how the whole matrix is being created. But all of a sudden, I felt this very strange energy around me. And I looked up and all around me in the house were these big, ugly gargoyles. And I'm like, the first time I've ever come across anything like that. And I was really quite scared. And I said to my soul, what in the world is going on? My soul said, they're gargoyles because you're susceptible right now. Your field is so open from the medicine, they can penetrate you and they can see your light. They don't like your light. Well, all of a sudden they started trying to fly into me. And I'm like, whoa. And I, because I've done many, many years of Tai Chi, I know how to close my field and I have a long background in martial arts. So I know how to use my internal energy to protect myself. So I congealed my field real tight and they'd kind of hit me, but try to get in and they would come up and then fly at me again. And this went on for like three hours. It was one of the most intense shamanic journeys I'd ever done in my life. I mean, I literally got out of this thing and I was sweating from constantly having to use my mind with such intensity to pull my field together. It's very hard to close your field when you're on that big of a dose. Here's the punchline. Back then, I wouldn't tell people about this stuff because they think I was crazy. Now, I don't care if they think I'm crazy because I've got enough proof that I'm not, that it doesn't matter what people think. The next day, you two, you probably know the story. Salico, you're going to find this interesting. The next day, I mean, literally the next day, I'm still like the medicine's still wearing off on me. I mean, that's a huge dose. I get a phone call from one of my instructors who lives in Miami, Florida, who has no idea what I'm doing, because back then I didn't tell people about this stuff. She says, Paul, this is going to sound really weird, but my cleaning lady is this Cuban woman. She doesn't speak English. She can hardly speak English, but she came up to me this morning and she said, 
you know that man, that man, your teacher, because she's seen, she said she's seen me watching your videos all the time when she's cleaning the house. She goes, that man that you, that you watch on TV. And she said, my friend, my instructor said, you mean Paul check? She goes, yes, him. You need to tell him he's in trouble. She said, there's gargoyles trying to get inside of his field and possess him. And you need to let him know to be very careful because they're really trying to get in, can, to, to take control of him. And she says, I, I don't know what the hell this woman's talking about, Paul, but she said, I had to call you and tell you. And I said, well, let me tell you something. Whoever that cleaning lady is, I hope you give her tips a lot because she's tapped in like hell. I told her the story. Now that call came from Miami and I live in San Diego. So there are people that are very tapped in out there and these things are very, very real. And my point, if I'm making a point is you need to really know what you're doing before you start using plant medicines and things that open your field up. And you also see, I was working on trying to map out where people get themselves in trouble so that when they came to me, I could say, okay, based on your symptoms and what you're telling me, I know exactly where you're at, where I've got to go to look for your broken soul or whatever it is. And it's dangerous work. I have to really do a lot of preparation and it is intense. So I'm saying you really got to be careful. You really got to be conscious and you should not goof around with psychedelic drugs as at anything above a very low dose because you open your field and you can enter the astral dimension and it's full of everything. When I was a girl, there was a guy who lived in our town who he was discharged from the military with schizophrenia after he, at least this is a story that I always heard, was that he, they did experimental testing of LSD on him in the military. And he had had a lot of abuse in his life. And so there's a very common breaking point between schizophrenia and hallucinogens when a person has a lot of repressed trauma, which is another way of describing what you're talking about. You open yourself up to entities. Yeah. Now, a lot of what happened with this guy was really weird or things he did. But I remember I was a teenager and... <laughs> of a smoking pot um, at near, you know, in town or something late later in the evening, I was probably early high school. And he came up to the group of people that I was with. And he told us that he wanted us to go to the graveyard with him to drink graveyard water at night. And then he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you don't have anything to worry about because you're brown. And I was like, what? Okay, so now my grandmother and my father are both people who have abilities. So, but at that time, I'm like, I think he's talking crazy. The next time I saw him, he came up to me when I was sitting on a park bench and he told me, You must be an angel because you have so many spirits around you. I have gone back to those conversations with him so many times because I realized, like, he really saw me. He saw me more than any of the people who were hanging out with me as my friends. He, did see and have an awareness he was tapped in but like you were saying if there's no teacher if there's no responsibility if you don't know what you're doing and your teacher could be in spirit because i've had plenty of teachers in spirit but if you're just out there winging it yourself doing hallucinogens at a festival or you know or with a pop-up you know guru then you do run a higher risk because your consciousness is opened and you don't know what to do with that open consciousness. That's why so many people can end up in a hospital yeah. when they're having a spiritual opening because there's nobody to explain. It's the difference between my growing up and Angie's growing up. 
You know, my growing up, I had the teacher the whole time. So, oh, this is what that is. That makes sense. Angie's is like, oh, no, I might have caused somebody's death instead of I had a precognitive moment in which I saw somebody's death. Yeah. So it's very, these are very, very important things. And that's why I want to make sure that people know this. Have either of you been given any information from those on the other side regarding what is going on here on Earth, particularly since COVID started? Have you any insights as to why there seems to be such a radical increase in evil on the rise, such as the worship of Lucifer and Satan in the last three years, as well as uh, what has all the hallmarks of a genocide operation going on? I mean, it's more than hallmarks, as you both know. So I'm just curious if you've got any insights spiritually from what's about what's going on. You know, because right now I don't have a lot of time outside of clients to tap in and explore and ask questions because I have two small kids and, you know, so I'm, mom life goes full force when I'm not working with a client. But the small times I have tapped into about negative energy and why it's rampant right now, I just get the same message about, you know, there's the cycles that the earth goes on into. We have, you know, yin cycles and yang cycles and there's lightness and dark, you know, it's all part of the universal consciousness is being going through these cycles. And when darkness comes in, um, it shows us where we're deficient and it shows us to bring us back into light. So these are just opportunities for us to grow. So instead of being scared and going, oh my gosh, that's tough. It makes us aware, like, you know, you know, with COVID and everything, it starts making us aware of pharmaceutical companies. Are they ethical? What's, what's really happening behind some of the things we're hearing about what's, you know, with the, in the world. So I, you know, I, I feel that that darkness serves a purpose. And when we acknowledge the darkness and see it and go, oh, wow, this is some, this is a really bad man that's doing bad things. It raises up where we have holes in society as a whole of where we have flaws in our education system and our teaching systems. And so that's the message I've got. So this is all part of, you know, the path of learning on the earth plane is to go through these cycles. If everything was airy, fairy and great, we wouldn't learn or grow or know where we had issues as a collective consciousness. I'm really, I'm really, I'm glad you brought that up. I have had more experiences with um, one of my personal, I have two personal studies, which, you know, like when you talk about doing mass amount of hallucinogens to see where people can get lost, I have a tendency to, in my spare time, study cults and propaganda, okay, because I really believe that I run into a lot of people who've either been brought into bad religious situations or who've experienced some kind of brainwashing, whether it's cultural government or whether it is, you know, being in an abusive relationship. So that is something like the Lucifer and Satan thing in the last three to four months, I have literally had multiple people come to tell me that either, and they're coming out of this or they're deep in like this psychosis piece during it as well. But I've had people come to me and tell me that they were Lucifer or that they had believed they were, that they had, that they had discovered that Lucifer was their spirit guide, that Lucifer was, you know, their soulmate. I mean, like some crazy ass shit where I felt like I had just gone back to the 1980s satanic panic. Okay. And so I have been seeing this. I've been seeing people who are lost and feel helpless and who feel broken and outside of the norm. And they, and I also know people who work with Lucifer as the, 
you know, the fa- a fairy being and as a power of light, because the word Lucifer actually means that I can separate them out just like I can separate somebody who works with Lilith in her form as a goddess or Lilith, who's purposely working with the demon Lilith. Okay. It's a mindset of what you're choosing to work with. And people feel powerless. And when people feel powerless, that is one of the areas where they feel that they can grab power. It's just like there's more than one path to magic. And one of them seems to come with shortcuts that could involve working with beings that might might be seeking to manipulate and harm you, but you're willing to take that chance because you think you're more clever than them. You think that you're getting something out of the deal that you're not. But at some point, you know, it goes bad for all the people that I have met that are involved in this. I will say that at some point it goes bad. And when it goes bad, it's their home's life falling apart, their friendships falling apart, their you know, some of them have even ended up in mental hospitals. So this is a real issue. The other thing that I'd like to add is that at the beginning of COVID, I took part in writing an anthology called the Corona Transmissions. And it was put together by um, Richard Grossinger, who is my publisher. I went with him from North Atlantic Press to Inner Traditions. He was one of the people who like the editors that put it together. It was when I came in, it was already in process. And so I was able to be handed the work of five other thinkers, you know, people who are astrologers, psychics or thinkers. And what blew my mind is that we were all pretty much on the same page, which is that there is and there's astrological things that go along with this, but that there's this you believe in quantum physics and all these multiple realities. And some of them I were, you know, a light purple shirt instead of a black shirt today. That's the simplest change. But we're in a time where there are these two main realities that we're buying into. And one I refer to as fear and order, because it's either power over or I'm being disempowered. And that's part of your belief system. I can't do anything or I have to take advantage of everybody else in order to survive. And the other mindset is what I call green, because it's more of that we have to work together kind of like what we're doing. We're not sitting here and saying my way is the only way. We're saying, oh, look, we're all thinking, how is our thinking benefiting each other? So I believe that we are, and I've heard this from multiple, because I've done a ton of podcasts recently too, with people from different countries also. So this is like not just something we are thinking here. This is something that is going on on the globe where people are acknowledging that people are splitting into these different mindsets. And one of those mindsets really is about disempowering others. So things like Lucifer and Satan and working with demons is going to be a lot more appealing if you think that your road to power is about control and control over yourself and others. So that's my theory on it. And but I'm really glad you brought up particularly the thing about the Lucifer and Satan thing, because I really, as a person who isn't really tied into Christian religion at all, or Hebrewic religions, okay, I don't, you know, I, I don't really, that's not my gig. It's not that I don't believe that those beings exist, but I just find it interesting that there is such a rise in particular of, you know, connection with Lucifer and Satan. Yeah, it's, it's extremely rampant. 
I mean, I'm 62 years old in August, and I've never seen such a public display on, on television, in, in in movies, on, you know, Super Bowl. I mean, it's just like, what in the world is with all this satanic stuff? It's like all of a sudden the mushrooms are just blasting out of the forest, you know? Unlike a lot of people, I, I have training to see what an enemy looks like and what they behave like and the tricks they play, and I'll leave it at that. Well, that's it right there. The people who are showing up don't have that. They think that they're somehow brought into this romanticism of it. Like that's one of the things I'm finding is that one of the things I will say is that most of the people that I'm coming into contact with who are falling in that particular path are people who have deep trauma. And usually it's a trauma that involves sexual trauma and a feeling of helplessness. And that I think of that as, you know, like, you know, like the predator, because I've also seen a super rise in vampirism, like people who are literally joining cults in which they are, you know, taking part in what they think of as a religion of vampirism. But I've looked at the documentation on this. This is still talking about, you know, it's like they might be doing it more sterilely, but they're still like ingesting each other's blood and doing it for, you know, like there's still, and most people I meet, are people who will never go beyond what I say being the snack. It's like, you're not getting power. You're somebody else. This is a sadomasochistic relationship, in my opinion. Yeah. It's been an absolutely amazing podcast with the two of you. I feel so blessed to, to have been able to find two women of your depth, power, and experience and put you two together. And amazingly, you know, oftentimes when you get two powerful people like this side by side, it's almost like a battle to see who can get the most attention. But it's almost as though the two of you wove together to create this amazing tapestry that wove itself into existence, which is really that beautiful mother energy of how do we make it all work for everybody, you know, and I'm very grateful for, for what you've shared today. So to close, I'd say... Uh, each of you can offer what services you offer, um, whether it be resolving grief for loved ones, helping people communicate to the other side, uh, health, whatever you want to offer as we close so people can find you and know what you do offer. Um, and then um, any websites and any final comments you'd like to share. So if you want to go first, Sally Crow, feel free since you're our guest. Thank you. First of all, thank you. I really want to say how much I appreciate this. And I really, I get excited when I meet people like Angie, because there's not a lot of other people that, she, and, and you as well, but I think Angie and I's gifts are more similar. I think it's exciting to meet yeah. somebody else who also gets it because you feel like you've been talking the secret language. And I'm lucky I have a sister who does. So I've always had my buddy, but, um, I appreciate that. That is, that's wonderful. Thank you. You can find me at my website, which is sallycrow.com. That's S-A-L-I-C-R-O-W.com. Again, S-A-L-I-C-R-O-W.com, sallycrow.com. I blog just about weekly there. I have three books with all the information and videos and stuff I do is on my website um, services. I see people both in person and online for psychic readings and spirit communication um, and for energetic or intuitive healing. So I teach classes. I've got a bunch of stuff going on, but all of my stuff is on my website. And if you go there, 
It will immediately prompt you to join my mailing list. I suggest you do if you're interested because I will send you my blog that has information on what I'm doing every week. That's great. Yes. Yeah, so my website is Angie's World. Um, Dot com so a n g i e s w o r l d um, dot com uh, my email is angie's world at me dot com and the work I specialize in is soul retrieval past life regression talking to um, past relatives uh, connecting so if there's questions you're looking for and you're wanting to speak to someone to get clarity or information that's my forte so. If you're interested in any of that work, I'd be happy to help you to help with grief, you know, helping you with connection and just feeling like you're there. The person isn't gone. I think that's really important is to realize that we're, we're here just in a different dimension. I did mention a little bit in the podcast, but that's also my forte is biogeometry and that's energy healing. And so I use uh, Dr. Ibrahim Kareem's work with the uh, IKUP pendulum where I can test your organ systems and see where there's um, blockages or uh, imbalances in your system. And with that, I use his signatures to help balance the body. I do that work for people who are on their deathbed as well to help balance their systems. And there's a way to help clear their soul with biogeometry once they pass on. So those are all really good things to know um, to do because, you know, if someone gets stuck, as we talked about, and someone's not doing the psychopomp work, you, you don't want your loved one to be stuck in the afterworld, middle world. And, and so anyway, those are things I, I love to do. Uh, so if you're interested in learning about that, um, you can contact me. I'd be happy to share more information about that. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And I will close by saying thank you to our sponsors of the podcast. You're amazing people with amazing products. And it's always a beautiful thing for me to know that every dollar that I spend with the sponsor's products or that you spend goes to regenerative farmers and people that are really putting their energy back into the earth to make the earth a better place. And I think that's something we all need to be very conscious of. So I've been very blessed to be able to find sponsors that are aligned with my mission, vision, and values uh, because I'm very earth conscious and being raised on a farm, I know exactly how mother earth cycles energy. And I know what happens if you don't live to those principles. And we're all seeing that in the world right now. So thanks for anything that you do buy from the sponsors, because a little bit goes to me to support the podcast so I can find amazing guests like Angie and Sally Crow and share this kind of information with you. And I'd, I'd like to say, I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. And you know, my rule, if you love it, share it with everybody. If you didn't like it, it's our secret. So lots of love to all of you, and I will share something new and interesting with you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guests, Sally Crow and Angie Check. Make sure to pick up a copy of Sally Crow's newest book, Spirit Speaker, A Medium's Guide to Death and Dying, available at innertraditions.com forward slash books forward slash spirit dash speaker, or at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all other good booksellers. To find out more about Salico services, psychic readings, spirit sessions, and more, visit her website at salicrow.com. That's S-A-L-I-C-R-O-W.com. You can connect with Salicrow on Instagram at Salicrow, on Facebook at Salicrow Psychic Medium, or on her YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Salicrow Psychic Medium 1911. 
You can find Angie online at angiesworld.com, where you can learn more about her coaching and consulting services, including energy medicine and soul retrieval. Follow her on Instagram at oneanginator, that's the number one, and anginator, or on Facebook at angie.lustric. Catch up with Paul on Instagram, TikTok, and threads at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors by Optimizers, Paleo Valley, and Organifi, our podcast sponsors, Ned and Wild pastures and our newest preferred product sponsor peak life please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for listeners the links are in the show notes to get the latest news from paul and the living 4d podcast subscribe to his newsletter at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast And finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. 